Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where each week we have an unusually in-depth conversation about one of the world's most pressing problems and how you can use your career to solve it. I'm Rob Wiblin, Director of Research at 80,000 Hours. We've done a number of episodes on COVID-19 now, but one thing we've deliberately avoided offering opinions about uh, is how the developing world has been performing in terms of its response, uh, or what lower-income countries actually ought to do. That's because both we and our guests uh, just thought that we didn't know, uh, and if we opened our mouths, uh, would run too high a risk of saying something that was completely wrong. But Shruti Rajagopalan is someone who actually does have a good idea of what's been going on in parts of the developing world, uh, and the effects that that policy response has had. In particular, she's been following the situation in India, and writing about it since April, when she published Pandemic Policy in Developing Countries, Recommendations for India, along with her colleague Alex Tabarok. After seeing those articles, Howie Lumpel was really excited to interview Shruti uh, to learn more about this incredibly important topic. I suspect many of you will feel similarly in the dark about the impact that COVID has been having in uh, poor countries, uh, and so we'll be as curious to find out what's in this episode as I was. Howie and Shruti uh, recorded this episode three weeks ago, uh, and since then, looking at the website Our World in Data, the number of new COVID-19 cases and deaths in India that are being recorded each day has continued to climb uh, at a roughly linear rate. The number of new cases found each day has gone up about 60% over those three weeks, uh, while the number of deaths recorded each day has risen 25%. One bright spot, though, is that the fraction of tests that come back positive has actually declined a bit uh, from 12% to 9%, uh, because the number of tests performed each day has roughly doubled. By the way, if you're wondering how I keep abreast of the pandemic, uh, I visit ourworldindata.org slash coronavirus uh, every couple of days and look at their graphs. The team at Our World in Data has done an amazing job uh, visualizing the the absolute piles of data uh, that are coming out about COVID-19 all the time, uh, and they deserve a lot of credit for that. Finally, uh, before the interview, I wanted to make sure that you know that Shruti has actually just launched a podcast of her own uh, called Ideas of India, which describes itself as a discussion of the academic ideas that can propel India forward. Uh, The first episode is now out and is an interview with Ajay Shah about his book In Service of the Republic, The Art and Science of Economic Policy, which tackles the question of when market failure justifies state intervention. So if you like this interview and have an interest in economic policy in the developing world, do consider subscribing to that show, Ideas of India. All right, without further ado, here's Howie Lempel interviewing Shruti Rajagopalan. Today, I'm speaking with Shruti Rajagopalan. Shruti is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. She grew up in New Delhi, India, where her mother was a renowned classical musician and her father was a banker. She studies law and economics, first acquiring a BA in economics and a law degree from the University of Delhi in India. She went on to attain a master's degree in law and economics, and finally a PhD in economics from George Mason University, which she chose because of its rich tradition in political economy. She then taught for six years at SUNY Purchase, before she more recently returned to GMU. As a fellow at the Mercatus Center, she works on Indian political economy, including public choice, constitutional economics, and some work on COVID that we'll discuss today. In addition to all of her academic work, she directs India grant making from a fairly unique foundation called Emergent Ventures. After living in New York City for almost a decade, she now lives in Arlington, Virginia, with her husband and her dog. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Judy. Thanks for having me. This is a pleasure. I'm a big fan of the show. So first, we're going to start with the question we always start with. What are you working on right now? Why do you think it's very important work? So I'm working on about three different projects. They seem disparate, but I see a connecting thread in all of them. One is I just started working on a book on property rights in India. It is mainly focused on eminent domain. And the big question I'm trying to answer is, 
what are the reasons we have such weak protections for property and against government expropriation or nationalization in India? I'm trying to understand it from a point of view of evolution of, you know, the political economy of India. So I'm looking at, you know, colonial history, more modern history on why these constitutional protections were weakened. And it obviously has very important consequences for modern day India. Since partial liberalization in 1991, you know, India tried to embrace markets and it is not easy to have a fair or functional free market economy without a strong foundation of property rights. So that's, you know, the the reason behind the project. So I've just got started on this. I hope to have, you know, a book in, in due time. So that's one big project. The other one also, I just launched a new podcast. It is called The Ideas of India. The, my goal with this podcast is to bridge the gap between academic ideas and policy in India, the current discourse on news is a little bit disappointing. It really lacks depth. It's not rooted in, you know, the most contemporary rigorous research or data. And the academic work that is actually rigorous and well-researched is not so accessible to, you know, just engaged citizens or even public intellectuals. It's very specialized. So the, the goal of the podcast is to bridge the gap. And I have a cracking list of academics and experts who've written really great books and papers. And it's available on, you know, Stitcher, Google, Spotify, all the usual outlets for free download. And I believe by the time this podcast airs, there should be some episodes available. I think the first couple of them are with Professor Ajay Shah on state capacity and government and market failure and uh, policymaking in India. The other one is on India's constitutional founding moment with Professor Madhav Khosla. So, you know, that's I'm hoping to start a different project with that podcast. And finally, the third big project is I direct the India Grants for Emergent Ventures, which is the philanthropic venture started by Tyler Cowan at the Mercatus Center and George Mason University. I love this particular project. I'm very new to it. I'm learning a lot. It started with a special grant, which was devoted as, as a tranche of funding for Emergent Ventures India. And the goal was to support moonshot ventures, you know, which are either about India or emerging from India, working on Indian problems. And this came about because even before the India Emergent Ventures launched, we got some great applications from Indians and from academics in America working on India. These were excellent problems. So this is not surprising. There's some exceptional young talent in India that goes unnoticed because the spotting of talent is still weak. And, you know, the, the value of entrepreneurial ideas, particularly moonshot ideas, which are most likely to fail, but were they to work, they have this huge payoff. That is still an under-recognized or under-appreciated idea in India. And in, in one sense, EV India is our attempt at a moonshot because even a small difference that one can make in India has an outsized effect because of just the large number of people that it can impact. So, you know, that's the third project. Aside from this, there's always the bread and butter work of, you know, deadlines, projects, working on papers, policy briefs, contemporary columns and, and things like that. But these are sort of the big themes. They seem very different, but I think the unifying thread is to think about changing and improving the world on a few margins. You know, the first is just a dedicated effort to improve economic growth, because I believe that is a key to unlock a lot of the other solutions to problems that we face today. The other, of course, is a you know, dedicated commitment to human liberty and freedom, which, which reflects in my constitutional work. And finally, one doesn't have to wait for all the institutions to be conducive before we think about entrepreneurial action, right? You can support moonshots, even in an institutional environment that's weak, hoping to 
to push the envelope on a slightly different margin and, and improve things and make lives better. So it all seems a little bit disparate, but it somehow makes sense in my head. Awesome. It sounds like great work. Yeah, so the topic that we wanted to start talking about is COVID and specifically how it's both affected India and how India has responded to the pandemic. And so we've talked a lot about the pandemic on the podcast already, but have really focused on its effects on the developed world and sort of had a, a bias in that sense. So we really wanted to make sure that we broadened out, sort of talked about the effects more broadly. So I guess to start, you wrote a few papers on COVID and I guess you're an economist, not an epidemiologist or a doctor. So I'm curious about how you started to do some work on it and what you think an economist can bring to the table. So, you know, the work of epidemiologists and the scientific community and the medical community is incredibly important. They have the capacity to inform us on the nature of the disease and how to attack that from a treatment point of view. And epidemiologists can provide us with good models, ideally, right? But all sorts of models on how the virus may spread, what we can expect from the pandemic, how long it will go on and things like that. But when we are in the realm of public policy, that is what kinds of actions, you know, public and private institutions can take to counter the effect of the pandemic or to cope with the pandemic. Now we're in a slightly different world. We're in a world of trade-offs, right? And this is where I think more generally economics has such an outsized influence on public policy because you're always trying to be on the correct side of these trade-offs. But I think it's also true for COVID. So epidemiologists may be able to tell us how, you know, the rate of growth of the of the virus uh, spreading through the community, right? But they are not in a position to compare what kinds of policies to take because that depends on, for instance, healthcare capacity, right? So in the beginning, there was this huge conversation about flattening the curve. Now, flattening the curve obviously has two sides to it. One is how quickly people are getting sick and ending up in the hospital. But the other part of it is hospital capacity, right? Now, the first part of it, the, the epidemiologist can tell us. But the second part of it, which is what is our existing hospital capacity, how many resources we need to devote to it immediately to increase the capacity, and how many resources do we devote to, you know, imposing shelter in place or lockdown kind of policies to reduce the spread of the disease? I don't think that's a medical decision. I think that's squarely a public policy decision. So this is where I think more generally, you know, policymakers have a lot to say. And I think economists have jumped into this conversation. The other area, of course, is that the pandemic is having a huge disruption on economic activity and overall economic growth. And that is squarely in the sandbox of economists. So, you know, I think these are two places where economists can contribute, ideally with a lot of epistemic humility. But, you know, that's true, I think, virtually for any discipline. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I guess because it just affects so many aspects of life, almost every discipline, I think, you know, has something to, to contribute on this front. Absolutely. I think psychologists have been doing some great work on how to just cope with the everyday aspects, you know, uh, of the pandemic. In particular, I, I've had close friends who've lost family members, not to COVID, but to other diseases like cancer during the COVID pandemic. And they weren't able to have funerals, you know, and, and couldn't get. So I think there is, like you said, there are lots of other disciplines. There's a lot of other specialized areas that are telling people to cope with social distancing or loss or, you know, how to deal with, you know, economic disruption and things like that. And I think the medical practice of 
how to treat COVID is one very important part in a much larger problem. Yeah, I remember talking to some experts about the Ebola epidemic several years back and how important it was to have anthropologists get involved because a lot of the fix was changing burial practices. And you really need to just understand the the culture on the ground and how to communicate with people locally if you're going to actually be able to get people to change practices in somewhere so sensitive. Absolutely. No, I and, and I think this is also on a global scale. I think we, we might get the best results if, if everyone chips in, you know, on the areas where they have expertise. So I guess diving into actually what's going on in India, just start with telling us a bit about what India has done about coronavirus sort of in the period from February up until now. Yeah. So India was a little bit late in terms of the numbers increasing with coronavirus. It started with a student who returned to the state of Kerala from Wuhan. So the state of Kerala had the first known case. I think this was end of January, early February. But it was relatively slow on the uptick, right? So by early March, you have people running out of space in hospitals in Italy and Spain. And, you know, there's South Korea is testing at sort of this war footing. But India was still relatively unaffected, you know, especially for by, by in comparison to the scale of the population, there were just a handful of cases. But the number of cases started increasing. And in Early to mid-March, there were also a couple of super spreader events. So one reason for, you know, increase in COVID transmission was just people returning from various parts of the world and not realizing that they had COVID and then, you know, getting sick and getting tested. But in the meanwhile, they had interacted with lots of members of the community. The other was there was uh, there were a couple of super spreader events. You know, one was religious congregation and that religious congregation happened in New Delhi, but it had people from all over Asia and the Middle East. And some of the members immediately after that went back to Dharawi, this, the largest slum in Mumbai. And, you know, that was sort of the beginning of, you know, the, the uptick in cases in Dharawi. So this is sort of, uh, from my memory, how it all started in India. And the other sort of, you know, just looking at global news, I think what happened in Italy and Spain was a big wake-up call for everybody around the world, right? I mean, no one thinks of Italy as a as a country which is struggling with its healthcare system. I mean, I'm sure they have problems, but, you know, it doesn't seem like a fragile state. And when COVID hit, it just sort of, it, it seemed like everything was so overwhelmed and things just sort of came to a standstill. And I think it was frightening for a lot of people in leadership positions in a lot of countries and, and served as a wake-up call. I have no doubt that there was, there was something similar that went on in the Indian leadership. Now, since then, what has happened is, in um, you asked earlier about how economists can contribute. And there was a big conversation, as I said, about flattening the curve. And I grew up in India. And, you know, just anecdotally, I knew that Indian healthcare capacity is incredibly weak. Right. So I was talking to one of my co-authors and colleagues. His name is Abhishek Chautagunta. He is a PhD student at the University of Hamburg. And our intention was to write a very different paper. We wanted to talk about like all sorts of policy actions that are available in the economy and, you know, what kinds of, you know, economic restrictions to impose and things like that. But our starting point was we need to know what the healthcare capacity is in reality to understand how much one needs to flatten the curve. And we couldn't figure that out, you know. So we started looking it up and there were no papers on healthcare capacity in India. 
And so we started digging through government reports, you know, literally trying all we did in that paper. There's actually nothing really innovative in that paper. It's a simple counting exercise. And economists know how to count a little bit better than some of the other disciplines because we we try and aim for consistency. We always compare apples to apples. So that's sort of how that paper came about. And all we did, you know, with with no additional modesty on on my part, is we just counted. We counted how much government spends on healthcare, how much private citizens spend on healthcare, how many hospitals we have, how many ventilators we have, and you know, so on and so forth. And at that point, it became very clear that healthcare capacity in India is one extremely low, and two, it is already operating at its max. You know, which makes it extremely fragile in in the event of a pandemic, and that is why we figured that that we need to pay a lot more attention to what to do if there is a lockdown, because it would be very hard to contain this without some kind of severe restriction on economic activity. And that's sort of how I got started on COVID. And then, you know, of course, I wrote another paper with another colleague of mine at the Mercatus Center, Alex Tabarok, who also co-authors A Marginal Revolution with Tyler Cowan. And we wrote a paper specifically on some of the challenges that are there in developing countries, which don't exist in other countries, right? So the kind of density of population, for instance, in Mumbai is is unlike anywhere else. Dharavi's, uh, I believe, density of population, though we don't have exact estimates, is 20 times that of uh, New York City. So you know that it's an incredibly crowded place. And now in the event of a pandemic where social distancing is very important, but Dharavi is also an engine of economic growth. It's a billion-dollar industry, right? So how do you think about these kinds of questions in a world where you have constraints that are there in developing countries. So that's kind of how I got started thinking about these problems. And it was all about, mostly about India, because that's the, that's sort of the local context that I knew best. But overall, even now, I feel India is underprepared from a capacity point of view, because it's very difficult to overnight improve healthcare capacity you know, some things are easier than others. You can have pop-up quarantine centers. You can add additional hospital beds, but you can't overnight get more doctors, for instance, yeah. or nurses. You know, so there are margins that that one can attempt to change. And there are certain margins where it's very difficult to change capacity. And I think India has a very long struggle ahead because of capacity issues. That makes a lot of sense. It's wild to me that the data on Indian healthcare capacity didn't exist yet. And that for such a large country that nobody had sort of collected this, do you have a, I don't know, like any guess at why that would be the case and why this just hasn't happened yet? So it's one of those things. It all existed, but it was there in plain sight. It was there in lots of different government reports. It just wasn't there in one place put together, right? And that's a really odd thing about a lot of data problems that we have more generally, both in India and in developing countries. There are different organizations that try and collect this information that put it out there. There are independent organizations and government organizations that do healthcare surveys. A lot of the times the data is actually good quality, but this you know, general sense of there is one nodal agency which is trying to look at healthcare capacity across India and trying to give feedback and, and monitor, that is incredibly weak, not just in India, but in many other countries. I think we're facing something similar in the United States, right? The, the way different states learn from one another is not that much better 
than in India. So there is a certain element of a lack of coordination, you know, especially when we talk about very large countries, which are federal in nature, which have lots of different executive agencies. I think this is one of those coordination failures. And, you know, the the kinds of expert papers that are written on healthcare capacity, they are not doing this simple counting exercise. So there are very sophisticated papers that do exist and that have been written on India in the context of malaria or tuberculosis, you know, to compare with other sort of, you know, diseases which uh, which have a uh, big outsized impact in India relative to other parts of the world. But they're not doing this simple, you know, how many ventilators did we have in 2019 kind of exercise. So I think that the answer is somewhere there. So it's not like there's no conspiracy. There is no like, you know, hardcore failure. It's a lot of little failures that explain something like this falling through the cracks. That makes a lot of sense. I worry that this type of work just gets under-rewarded where in academia, if it's like a counting exercise or it's putting together a data set, it's just like fantastic public good, but you're not doing some methodological innovation that people are going to be really impressed by. And grant makers really want to see something that's like having a measurable impact on some particular disease. And so it feels like the type of thing that you can imagine just being undersupplied all over. Absolutely. And it's not just the kind of counting exercise we did. I think in general, survey articles, you know, whether they collect data from different areas or whether they put together literature on a on a specific problem, but from a whole variety of sources, I think surveys are just underappreciated in the academy. And it is not that sexy in policymaking and grant writing, as you pointed out. But, you know, I think we we put too much emphasis on individual papers, whereas individual papers I, I find typically, you know, not that useful, especially the empirical papers. I think it's very important to focus on literatures and surveys of literatures instead of, you know, one single result here or there. So you're absolutely right. It's underappreciated both within the academy. I think it's underappreciated in policy circles. But on the other hand, we were, you know, rewarded quite well because a lot of state administrators and local governance administrators wrote emails to us. We shared all our data with them. You know, we immediately put it in a nice Excel file. We told them exactly what were the the actual numbers we used, where we are using an estimation technique. And we shared it pretty widely. And, you know, both Abhishek and I got lots of emails. So I do think that there were some people who found it useful, mostly on the ground level. You know, we're talking about like district administration, hospital administration, those kinds of people. So I think that was a reward in itself, you know, and and I enjoyed writing the paper because we also just learned a lot about what was going on. So, for instance, I didn't know that the Indian state spent $16 per capita on healthcare compared to the global average of $763 per capita right? This is a global average and India is a relatively poor country. But, you know, even if you compare it to something like the BRICS countries, right? Brazil spends about $338. That's 21 times what India spends. Russia spends $267 per capita. That's about 16 times, right? Same with South Africa. It's about 14 times. So India is a little bit more comparable to Sierra Leone and Nigeria, which are in the low teens in terms of, you know, healthcare spending per capita by the state. Now, private healthcare spending in India is a lot more. So, for instance, the government spends about 1.17% of the GDP on healthcare, but Indians spend about 3.7% of the GDP on healthcare. So, you know, there it's not that the gaps aren't getting filled, but these are just things that I wasn't aware of personally, mainly because I don't work in health, and was suddenly incredibly pertinent because 
all these different countries are facing the same pandemic, right? And now they all need to provide a very similar response with vastly different capacities. So I thought thinking about healthcare capacity was incredibly important because flattening the curve doesn't mean the same thing everywhere, both because the curve is different and the healthcare capacity is different. Yeah, I was really surprised when I read that paper and saw the differences in spending between India and the other BRICS countries. And it sort of made me feel like the BRICS acronym just gave me this mindset where I like lump all these countries together and expect them to be at sort of like a similar level of wealth and like similar in other ways. And I think it's just not not really the case. Not really the case because Brazil's population is the size of Uttar Pradesh, which is the largest state in India. Right? Brazil is 200 million people. That is one among 28 states in India, though it's the largest. So you're absolutely right. It is, it, I mean, it's sometimes it's a useful comparison because these are emerging economies who've had a certain kind of transition in their development process. But, you know, for more specific things, you're absolutely right. It's very, very hard to compare them. Even within India, there is so much variation between different states. So Uttar Pradesh, which is the size of Brazil and relatively poor state, is vastly different from Kerala, which is a much smaller state with much higher state capacity, much better healthcare markers, much higher spending on healthcare, better infant mortality, and so on, right? And now we're in the realm of comparing hundreds of millions of people. So it's not a tiny you know, comparison proportionally, it's a very large comparison, but even India is more like a subcontinent. It's it's hard to compare. Just think of it as a blob, at least in my head, especially because I, you know, write a lot on India. So I guess sort of set the stage and India sort of has low healthcare capacity and you know, is already utilizing almost all of it. And then the outbreak hit India later than a lot of other places What happened then? Do we know why it took so long for India to really start seeing a lot of cases? That was surprising to me. So one of the things that happened was India imposed a very severe lockdown, probably the most severe in the world, incredibly early. And it was a nationwide lockdown, right? So a lot of other countries and cities and towns, their reaction was that, you know, maybe there is one municipality which is severely affected and we need to restrict movement or, you know, contain that as a zone. I don't think until India had its lockdown, any country of that size had, you know, even attempted something like that. So I will say that though I I overall think the lockdown, you know, made a lot of mistakes in terms of policy, and we can discuss that more. The fact that India imposed such a severe restriction that early in the game definitely had some impact on the growth rate, right? Now, having said that, because other systems were weak, right? Because overall healthcare capacity is weak. The lockdown was very poorly implemented. The government didn't recognize the need to think about economic migrants, right? About 50 million of them, of which about 20 million actually tried to go back to their villages and they were out of work because of the severe lockdown. So because of various other reasons, there was a lot of movement of people and there was, you know, a spreading of cases. So I would put it this way. India managed to restrict the growth of cases because of the lockdown. But given the severity of the lockdown, we still saw an uptick of cases, which is a failure on the part of policymakers. So it's a little bit of both. And now that the lockdown has been lifted, you can again see a steady uptick 
in the growth of cases. And that is worrying because, you know, as, as I mentioned, because of healthcare capacity. And second, you know, when we're talking about a pandemic, the number of bodies in an area really starts mattering. And in India, that number is incredibly large, you know, both in terms of absolute numbers and in terms of density, you know, in a contained area. So for those reasons, now that we're out of the lockdown and, you know, people are going back to economic activity as they must, and, you know, now we have news reports that migrant labor is actually coming back from rural areas to urban areas to start earning again. Now we are seeing a very steady increase in cases. And it's a little bit worrying, you know, because the government doesn't have a clear policy on how to contain this. Aside and, from imposing restrictions like lockdowns, which is not a long term policy. And so we're seeing an increase in cases. Can you give some sense of how bad it's gotten so far? Is this one of the countries that, you know, is seeing huge prevalence rates like the United States might be, or is it sort of still in an earlier stage? So both, a little bit of both. So let me lay out the numbers for you, and that might give a slightly better picture. These numbers are roughly like mid to late July, you know, so take that in that context. I don't know sure. when listeners will listen to this. So India at right now has about 1.2 million confirmed cases or almost that number. It's only topped by Brazil and United States in terms of the number of cases, right? We're at, there are about 400,000 active cases in India right now. That is those who haven't yet recovered or died. And we are adding in India about 40,000 new cases a day. That's sort of where we are right now. And so far, there have been 30,000 COVID deaths, you know, reported as COVID deaths. So that's the story on India. Now, just as a point of comparison, it seems like 1.2 million cases, very large, but it's about roughly 800 cases per million, right? So India is actually lower in terms of cases per million than its neighbors, Pakistan and Bangladesh, which are both at about roughly 1,200, you know, cases per million. Brazil and the United States are somewhere at the 10 to 12,000 cases per million mark, right? So that's the, the second thing I'd say. Now, in comparison, you know, the Southeast Asian countries have just done remarkably well, right? So Vietnam and Thailand, I, I, I sometimes just don't believe the numbers. I think Vietnam has less than five cases per million or wow. something like that. It's unbelievable. And Thailand has about 40 to 50 cases per million, you know? So this is, I just want to, Put this in, in context, you know, that there are absolute numbers, but we should think about cases per million because India also has very large number of people in absolute terms, right? The second aspect of this is testing, okay? So we can't say that because India has 800 cases per million, that's the prevalence of COVID. It is the known prevalence of COVID, right? So we only know as long as we test. So Another useful way to think about all these different countries is how much are we testing? So India's testing is relatively low, right? We're at about, I think, about nine to 10,000 tests per million. You know, that's the, the rough level at which we are. Now, compare this again to Pakistan and Bangladesh, which had more known cases per million. They're actually testing less per million. Both Pakistan and Bangladesh are about six to 7,000 per million mark in terms of testing. Right. But Brazil is testing 23,000 per million. South Korea was testing, you know, across the board, it's tested about 28,000 per million. Even South Africa, which is usually clubbed together with uh, India and, you know, Brazil, is testing 41,000 per million. 
And the U.S., unsurprising, is at 138,000 per million. The real surprise for me, and I don't know how to think about this, is Russia. Russia is testing 175,000 per million, right? That's really an incredible number. So these are just numbers I got from World and Data, but this is how I'm trying to think about it. I'm trying to think about how do we look at prevalence And you need to think about it both in terms of how many people are there in a particular area, but also how many tests we have. So I think the known prevalence in India is an understatement of the actual prevalence because we're not testing enough. Now, there's an additional issue here, which is who are you testing, right? Now, South Korea was testing everybody. In India, we are still only testing those with symptoms. So anyone who is asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic is not getting tested in India. And even those with COVID symptoms, if they're really mild, people are not going because they know that exposing themselves to a test center or a hospital is, is going to be a problem. So only people with severe symptoms or severe enough symptoms that they need medical help are getting tested. So these are just some things to keep in mind, you know, when one thinks about India and the scale of problem in India. Got it. That's really helpful. On the testing front, How surprised should I be that India has done such little testing? Like, in some sense, the fact that they took the lockdown so seriously would have made me expect that they sort of would have scaled up everything at like a really fast rate. And is it just much harder to scale up testing or what has caused that? So multiple reasons for that failure. So I, like you, was also very optimistic that it is hard to increase capacity in certain areas, but testing, you know, we can quickly increase capacity on testing, especially in the private sector. So my sense was that, you know, we would close down or have severe lockdown for about three weeks. And, you know, the Indian government would try and organize a lot of testing kits and also, you know, have pop-up labs and mobile labs and things like that to test more you know, broadly. None of that happened. And when I was trying to look into it, and Alex and I wrote about this a little bit, there are just so many bottlenecks in the Indian political economy, which make that incredibly hard. So I'll just give you a couple of examples. Some of these have been resolved, but it's indicative of of a failure and why it took place. So the Indian Council for Medical Research is the nodal agency that sort of, you know, guides the biomedical testing program and things like that in India. At the beginning of the pandemic, there were about 100 or 130 labs that had been approved by the ICMR, okay? Today, we have 1,000 labs or just a little over 1,000 labs. So it is both true that India did scale up testing, and it is also true that it didn't scale up testing fast enough. And one of the reasons was there were a lot of, you know, labs who were willing to test. In fact, we saw philanthropists, we saw, you know, other agencies. We even saw like entrepreneurs who produce cars and petrochemicals who said, I can repurpose one area of my factory into a testing lab. You know, how do I do that? But the approvals were very, very slow, right? So that's one major reason. And part of this is that's the job of the ICMR right? It is a bureaucratic agency. It's sort of like the FDA. They are supposed to slow things down. That is part of their job description. They are supposed to make sure that you don't have fraudulent labs or they have very, very good procedures and protocols and things like that. So they're not exactly designed for speed. So the failure is not that ICMR did things the way they did. It is that that's the only nodal agency, which is centralized to approve. So, you know, maybe they should have decentralized at the state level you know, sometimes at the city level on who approves testing labs and how we get them going. 
right? So that's one way to think about the, the scaling of testing. The other is, you know, other kinds of bottlenecks, like there were testing kits that people had imported to conduct tests that were stuck in customs because of import tariffs. Then the government issued a notification to, you know, eliminate import tariffs on all testing and, you know, PPE equipment until September. So in March, you know, they sort of, you know, suspended these tariffs for six months. And we wrote about that too. So these are the sorts of bottlenecks which cause the problem with testing. And even now, there aren't enough tests that are available. You know, every major government is struggling with testing. Yeah, it's amazing how similar a bunch of these problems sound to what I've been hearing about what's going on in the United States. And similarly, just having scaling up get caught up by the FDA. There are these like, they're just anecdotes, but these news stories and articles you can read about hospitals trying to import PPE and testing equipment and having the FBI intercept them. So it's really wild how this story of government regulations, uh, just like really slow th- slowing things down, seems to be pretty universal. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, we're really noticing it when it comes to COVID, but I'm sure it's true for so many other kinds of medical equipment. I'm sure it's true for like educational equipment for, you know, other kinds of life-saving devices. We just never saw the effect so, you know, it wasn't so visible. And now with COVID, it's incredibly visible, the harm that import tariffs can do or the harm that a centralized nodal agency, which is slow and bureaucratic can do. But these are problems, like you said, they're there in every country. India just can't afford them. You know, so I think that's the that's the aspect where this this failure in India is just there are too many lives lost and too many of them are relatively poor and marginalized people because of these failures. And and that part of it makes it just unacceptable. Yeah. So one thing that surprised me about this is, I guess, given some of your work that I've read on India's relatively low healthcare capacity and then state capacity in general, it was sort of surprising to me that they're actually able to have this kind of like a regulatory regime and sort of successfully, I guess both that they're able to successfully slow things down in this way and that they would have the ambition to have this much of a regulatory system. Is there any sort of explanation for for this sort of combination? Well, we've got to go really way back in history. You know, some of this is colonial hangover and some of this is socialist hangover. You know, both colonialism and the way the the British government handled the Indian problem or the Indian colony was that they you know, centralized all the power among a few people in Whitehall and said, okay, now you're going to run this entire country, right? So it was extremely centralized for about 200 years, even before the Indian government took over. So there is a certain aspect of India's centripetalism, which goes way back in a way that no one in modern day India can be blamed for it. The second aspect is socialism. You know, socialism just requires a very high degree of centralization. As you may know, in 1950, India started implementing a particular version of socialism, which was Fabian socialism. But it had a lot of elements of Soviet socialism, you know, price controls, quantity controls, a five-year plan made by an agency called the Planning Commission, which told you what the agricultural output should be and how much investment should be made in industry and what should be the savings rate in India. So all these things require very high degree of centralization. So India sort of mastered centralization over 200 250 years in this sense, right? So the the natural instinct 
point in Indian governance is to centralize. It is, it is not to federalize or to, you know, reduce the authority of the of the union government. So that's just the nature of the problem. It's sort of what everyone inherited. But so people try and do in some sense in governance what they know how to do. Right. When there was a pandemic before, we went to ICMR and ICMR gave us the policies and then it worked out. You know, there were, you know, there were some deaths, there were some errors, but, you know, it worked out. Now with COVID, what we're realizing is just the scale of the problem is so large that centralization completely fails. And we're not just realizing this in India, we're realizing this in the United States, right? Even Italian governance, you know, and policymakers have said that they might have centralized too much. This should have been contained a little bit more locally. So across the board, everyone believes that decentralization is the better way to handle COVID, both because centralization imposes too many costs on people in a way that's not necessary, right? Like the Indian lockdown, lockdown all of rural India, where there were hardly any cases, it was absolutely unnecessary. But also in terms of their capacity to execute, it becomes very difficult to execute at the block level, at the ward level. And all the success stories in India, which are, you know, like whether it's containment of the pandemic in Dharavi or Mumbai, they are all stories of decentralization and really strong executive action, but at the lowest level of governance. So I, I think... It's a complicated answer. So I'm sorry, I'm not giving you any any good straight yes or no answers. They're a little okay. bit uh, messy, but but that's how I would think about it. It's a messy situation. And I want to talk to you more later on about some of your work on both state capacity and on centralization. So that's a, a preview and showing us some of that work, I think, connects to some of the things going on with the pandemic. So I guess maybe stepping back to just what's going on on the ground right now. I guess the one or one puzzle that I saw people talking about a lot, and I don't know if you've looked into this or like saw this, is there's some claims that the mortality rate is surprisingly low in India. And I was wondering if you have a sense of, is it actually the case that the mortality rate is surprisingly low? And if so, why that might be? Yeah, so I I mean, this is going to be a slightly longish explanation with a standard disclaimer that I'm not saying this as a medical professional, right? So I'm going to talk about this only from the point of view of data and policy. So the first thing I would say is, I think it is an underestimate, Indian fatality rates, not just for COVID, but I think India has just never been good at counting deaths. Only 70% of the deaths in India are registered by the civil registering agencies. And this is not just debts. We're also not very good at counting births and issuing birth certificates. You know, as you know, when the when the citizenship row was happening about 10 months ago, lots of people said, I don't have a birth certificate. That's because we're just not so good at issuing them. Cities are a little bit better at counting debts because, you know, burial grounds and funeral homes and crematoriums need to get permission from the municipal government before they can do it. Uh, but in rural areas, for instance, just a lot of debts are not officially recorded. So the way we count deaths in India is not through the registry, but very often we count it later through, you know, the census, health surveys, you know, various kinds of health surveys, verbal autopsies, things like that. Now, of the 70% of the deaths that are recorded in India, the cause of death is not perfectly recorded in more than 80% of the cases, okay? The reason this is important is that we don't know. I mean, and when I say cause of death, I don't mean more specific medical cause of death. I mean, a lot of times we just don't know if someone died in an accident or someone died in a gunshot wound or someone died by drowning. Like those numbers are just not that good. Okay. 
you can see this most. I figured this out. I mean, there's a couple of great people who are reporting on the ground on this. So one is Rukmini S., who's a journalist. Another is Priyanka Pulla. So I've learned a lot from their work and I would recommend your listeners also go and read them. So for instance, in India, if you look at malaria or tuberculosis, you know, which have fairly high fatality rate in India. Now, the estimates for malaria deaths are about 250 times the actual number of malaria deaths recorded, which are something like 190 or something like that. So in all of India, apparently only 190 people died of malaria, right? But the but the estimates based on verbal autopsies and health surveys and things like that tell you that that number is an underestimate by 250 times, wow. right? TB estimates are 10 times the official number of TB deaths. So this is an overall problem in India. So I, I just want to put that out there before we have any discussion on COVID. Now, coming to COVID deaths, there is couple of issues. So the first is the ICMR, which is the same nodal agency, you know, which is appointing and approving labs and things. They clarified that any death of a COVID positive person has to be categorized as a COVID death, right? So there has been a biomedical test and that's a COVID death, even if there are comorbidities. So that's very, very clear from that, right? Now, second, if a person dies with a COVID related symptom, but was not tested for whatever reason, then it should be categorized as a COVID-suspected or COVID-probable death. This is all in keeping with WHO guidelines and things like that. So this is not that out of the ordinary. Now, in the first case, so when someone has been tested for COVID and they have a COVID-related death, we have decent numbers for that. Now, when someone dies of COVID, but or suspected of COVID, but they weren't tested, but all the symptoms point towards COVID, you know, either because someone they knew had COVID in the same household, or they have all, all, the, all the symptoms that we're talking about, those have just not been recorded well. In fact, no state has systematically reported the second category, which is COVID probable or COVID suspected, right? So that's the second part of it. Now, the third part of it is, even in the first case where there are lots of comorbidities, depending on the culture of the hospital and the local context, there's some inflation and deflation that happens, right? So some doctors are very careful. They want absolute certainty before they mark it as a COVID death. And some are a little bit more comfortable to say, hey, ICMR guidelines allow us. So there's also an interpretation issue. And this problem is not just true of India. It's true across the world, right? Like the UK is struggling with this right now where you are. So this is sort of the setup, okay? In addition to this, there are a bunch of COVID audit committees which are supposed to categorize each death and, you know, do that. But that hasn't worked out very well. The numbers right now are becoming too large. And even among the COVID audit panels in this particular instance, you have very good reporting or at least better reporting on anyone who died of COVID with a positive test and virtually no numbers on someone who may have died of COVID with no test at all. So that's, you know, what we put out there. Now, this is not a problem in India. There's a problem everywhere. Everywhere, depending on who got tested, we have an issue of categorizing COVID deaths, including the United States. Normally, what we do in these circumstances, especially in this kind of a pandemic, is you can solve it by counting excess mortality. Now, this is the idea that we compare, say, April of 2020 to April of 2019. We remove all the deaths, you know, which were, you know, not healthcare related, right? So, you know, we remove gunshot wounds and, and drownings and things like that. And then we just compare, did more people die in April 2020 than in April 2019 in this particular city or this particular country during the pandemic? And that gives you a sense of how many people may have died because of something to do with COVID, 
Now, the problem is in India, actually, mortality rates declined during uh, the pandemic. And this is because of the lockdown, right? So right. I'm going to give you the example of city of Mumbai, because Mumbai actually has one of the best municipalities in India. And they're pretty good at recording, you know, deaths and things like that. So in Mumbai, the total number of deaths just plummeted because Mumbai has a lot of car accidents. It has, you know, almost daily train accidents, people dying because they, they're traveling by the local train and they fall off those crowded trains, right? Those kinds of accidents just plummeted. So overall mortality in Mumbai declined. Now we can solve this using the same technique as excess mortality in other countries, which is you compare only healthcare-related mortality in April 2020 with April 2019. But because we don't precisely record cause of death, it's very, very difficult to do that. So this goes back to my original point about we just don't record deaths very well. So we are not in a position to even calculate this using excess mortality. So this is a major issue, right? So now this is not to say that mortality rates aren't lower in India. It's just to say that we don't know. We can't just look at one number and say the you know, case fatality rate is low and therefore India is doing really well. So what's happened is the debate in India is sort of polarized around this. You know, the ones who are the believers are like, oh, Indians are, of course, a superior race, you know, thanks to Ayurveda and yoga and our belief and our immunity. And, you know, there's all this nonsense going on. The skeptics are all into conspiracy theories because they're like, oh, this is like, you know, some of these other autocratic countries, they're suppressing rates and, you know, they're suppressing the number of deaths. I think neither of it is happening. I think we're just bad at recording deaths. So this is not to say that death rates aren't low in India. Now, to give you some sense of why both those things might be true, India does have a much younger population than most of the other countries that we're discussing. So in India, only 7% of the population is above 65 years of age. It's closer to 20% in most developed, most developed countries. So that is, you know, youth is a very good predictor of having mild symptoms or, you know, asymptomatic COVID-related issues. So that might be a big one. Another cultural factor, and this is someone in my family was telling me this. And first I said, okay, that sounds crazy. But then I said, maybe there's something to it. So, you know, this is a very typical, like, you know, Indian cultural critique of America. In America, a lot of the fatalities happen in nursing homes and, you know, elderly care uh -huh. homes. And one of my uncles said, you know, Americans just leave their family members to die. They send them to these nursing homes. In India, you have intergenerational living you know, which makes the things better. And I was thinking about it. And my original instinct was that, you know, when you have three generations living in the same household, you're putting the elderly at risk. But on the other hand, maybe culturally, people are taking less risk because they want to protect their own grandparents or their own parents, right? Or their uncles and aunts. So it might go either way. So, you know, culturally, a lot of Asian countries have three generations living in the same dwelling. And these countries seem to have done surprisingly well compared to, you know, the Western world where, you know, elderly people go to nursing homes or, you know, older age homes and things like that. So that might be a factor. So there might yeah. be cultural factors, there might be demographic factors, but these numbers are not to be taken. Literally, you cannot compare them with UK where there's incredibly good, you know, records of births and deaths and things like that. That makes a lot of sense. I wonder on the nursing homes also, if folks in nursing homes are just very likely to make hospital trips, just have a lot of older people who have just all sorts of medical problems, and it's just really easy to get a hospital-acquired infection. And so I wonder if people just bring it back 
Yeah, maybe. I mean, that could be the reason for the excess mortality, maybe. I don't know. But even more generally, I mean, we know from the cruise ship, you know, where they tested almost everyone, we know that they had like much higher positive rate in the test conducted because there were a lot more older people and there were fewer percentage of asymptomatic cases, right? So almost only half the number of the percentage of cases were asymptomatic, say, compared to other places where they conducted similar studies. So the best one I have seen, and I'm not an expert on these studies, I I must say, is the municipality of Va in Padua. They kind of locked down pretty much the entire municipality. This was pretty early in COVID. And I believe they tested about 3,700 people over twice over a period of, you know, two weeks. And they found that 40 to 45% of the cases are asymptomatic, which is much higher than the number of asymptomatic cases in, you know, on the cruise ship, which is also a case where they tested everyone. So we know that older people, you know, are more likely to have symptoms and also more likely to have more severe symptoms and need medical care. So there is something to it. But I think there are there's too much variation in the policies of individual nursing homes to be able to make a generalization. You know, some nursing homes just are very, very careful about who goes in and out and how many hospital visits are allowed and, you know, what's the staff turnover and things. And, you know, others not so much. So even in that, I would be a little bit wary of making a generalized, you know, nursing homes have these policies, though I'm sure they're contributory factors. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, are there, I guess I would expect the other source of evidence to be somebody trying to do just a really rigorous local sample somewhere and just try and in some locality, try really hard to test as many people as possible, get some sense of the overall prevalence and track all of the deaths so you get some estimate. Do you know if anybody's tried to do anything like that? I heard there were a couple of studies in California. I don't know if they've been published yet. I know that, you know, the one in in Padua, that's been published in Nature. So, you know, everyone can read that particular study. I think the cruise ship studies are now pretty well known. They were some of the some of the earliest. But you're absolutely right. This is exactly what we need to do. I know a couple of people are trying to get these things off the ground in India, but you need permissions, right? You need permissions from the government. You need to restrict that locality. You know, you need to know everyone who's going in and out. You need the support of the local bureaucracy, so to speak. So there are challenges in doing that kind of a study. I would say even, you know, a condo building, You know, I've lived in New York City in condo buildings that had like 3,000 people, right? As many as the municipality in in Padua. So I think even just a building, if, you know, you had to lock down a building because it was a containment zone might be a a good place to start just to get a sense of what is going on. But, you know, cities have younger people, relatively speaking. They have less intergenerational living. So, you know, there's just so many things, uh, so many variables in the mix that I think it's going to take us a while to sift through this literature and, you know, get numbers. I think we, we just have to have a lot of patience and humility when it comes to these numbers and also a lot of forgiveness. You know, people are trying to generate the best numbers that they can in this moment. And I I don't think the gotcha, this was wrong and it was proved wrong in the next study helps. I just think we're right in the middle of it. It's going to take a long time before we we sort it out. Yep, that makes sense. And I've actually been pretty impressed by, I guess, the early studies of infection fatality rates, I think like mostly centered around little less than 1%. And it seems like that's still in the range of what people think today. So it seems like 
actually epidemiologists did a pretty good job on that front and that estimates holding up. Yeah, no, I agree. And, you know, the infection fatality rate in both cases where they tested everyone is much lower than the case fatality rate. And, and you know, all the all the reasons why, which is only those people who have very severe symptoms were tested first, you know, so the case fatality rate was inflated. So that's, you know, definitely a picture. But now this is where I don't know what to think because I have no, you know, medical or biomedical training. I believe there are different strains that might be going around. Many people think that countries like Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia have a, a weaker strain of the virus than say Italy did or what the United States is facing now. I don't know how to figure that out or how to think about that. And we don't have good research on it yet. So there might also be a question of what is it that's affecting. So right now we know the strain that we know of, or we've collected data on seems to have this, you know, less than 1% or hovering around 1% fatality rate. But how that plays out over the next 10 to 12 months until we get a vaccine, I just have no idea even how to think about it. Do you know if there are other theories for why things seem to have gone so well so far in countries like Vietnam and Southeast Asia? Yeah, so... I'll tell you what I have read and how I'm trying to make sense of it. So one is a theory, and I and I feel I, I'm quite sympathetic to this, that countries that faced the first SARS pandemic or that faced, you know, the, the older pandemics from, you know, the late 60s or 1950s, they have, are much better at dealing with the current pandemic. I think there's some merit to this, and I'll tell you why. I think state capacity is something that needs to be built and learned, and it's not easy to mimic. It's very difficult. So in India, Kerala dealt really well with the problem. I mean, Kerala is one of the richer states. They have incredible literacy rates, low infant mortality rates, good state capacity, but they also had experience with the Nipah virus. And that, I think, really helped their response. It's a very recent problem that they faced, you know. So even in Africa, countries that have experienced Ebola or South Africa, which had the AIDS epidemic, these countries have just handled this in their own way. It's not the American way. It's not the Italian way. They have their own strategies for testing, social distancing and things like that, given their capacity constraints. But they've just had much better results than even some of the developed countries, right? So I think there is something about learning by doing, which can't be learned by not doing. It can't be learned by seeing or mimicking. I think it's just something that a society and a, and a governance system needs to experience. So I think that might be one reason. The other was the cultural reason that I, I, that I mentioned, which was, you know, many people believe that Asian countries have three generations usually living in the same dwelling, which makes people appreciate the risks faced by certain age groups much more. They take far more care. You know, they adjust their own risk levels accordingly. So I think there is some merit to that too. But, you know, I mean, in one sense, both Thailand, Thailand, which is an incredibly globalized economy, lots and lots of, you know, tourists coming in, you know, every week, every year. And it, Thailand doesn't border with China, but, you know, close enough. But Vietnam does part of it, China, right? And you can see that even with that kind of close proximity to the origin of the pandemic, they seem to have had like a really good response. The other thing is Asians are really good about wearing masks. We've seen that in Asian and, you know, both South Asian and East Asian countries, even in India. You know, I mean, I live in the United States right now. We're having a sort of like meltdown, you know, politically and in civil society over masks. 
And there are various reasons for it. But in India, there's no similar meltdown. Like people wear masks, people who couldn't find masks, you know, in India anyway, the, the culturally, the clothing has like an upper body cloth, you know, when most people just cover their face with that and things. So people have just been good about those sorts of things. So in a sense, you know, when it's hard to socially distance because you may live in a slum or you live in a crowded place or you live with too many people in a single dwelling, maybe people compensate by other measures. Maybe they wash their hands more. Maybe they are more compliant about mask wearing and things like that. So there is definitely something going on culturally. I'm not able to put my finger on it because even culture vastly varies between these countries and even yeah. within India. So I think I would put it down to, you know, learning by doing both in terms of governance and, and you know, within the families on how they might have reacted to the past pandemic. Yeah, I wonder on the masks front, I guess I don't, I don't remember whether or not the sort of prevalence of masks in Asia preceded SARS or how much of it came afterwards. So I've wondered if the sort of comfort with masks in Asia is partly from the experience of having really serious respiratory outbreaks beforehand. That's a good question. I have absolutely no idea. That's a really good question worth looking into. I do know that in Asia, especially very, very pollu- like, you know, Beijing and Beijing's pollution levels are legendary at this point, right? <laughs> Same with New Delhi. I see people wearing masks in Beijing and New Delhi, even without a pandemic. Yeah. Like they just wear a mask. So I think the environment imposes enough stresses and maybe some of it is past pandemics and some of it is other stresses, you know, just bad smells or bad pollution. But people don't seem to associate masks with like loss of liberty or something like, you know, what's happening in some of the other places in the world. And in all these South Asian countries, I think it wasn't politicized. You know, masks were just not politicized in a way that they were in the United States. So there is also some of the current response to the problem, right? You know, if your president doesn't think you need to wear a mask, like the Brazilian case, right? Or or the American case, or in America, they actually went out of their way to say, you don't need to wear masks. And now we understand that the reason for it was they were worried that not enough masks would be available for healthcare professionals. Now, this is not a misunderstanding of medicine. It's a misunderstanding of economics right? Masks can be relatively easily increased in supply should you have the right trade policies and, you know, the right incentives. It's easy to scale up mask production. But now we realize that people were discouraged from wearing masks, worried about shortages. So some of it is just we don't believe that masks do anything. Some of it is we think masks may help. We're not absolutely sure, but, you know, we discouraged you for a different reason. But it got politicized in Brazil and America in a way that it just didn't in Asia. So some of it is also just contemporary in the moment politics. Yeah, it seems like just a tragedy that something that feels like it should be just so technical and medical got so politicized in the U.S. Also, I wonder if one aspect of it is sort of the conservative conservative in the sense of like risk averse nature of the like medical regulatory agencies, where I remember seeing a lot of reporting claiming that if you don't have an N95 mask, it won't do anything at all. And it just never made sense to me. It was like, well, clearly it is. I know how like paper works. Clearly some of the air and like some of my spit is going to be stopped by this barrier. I just don't see how it's not doing anything at all. But I think there's my perception is there's sort of like a Either this thing has to be like the industry standard, or we're going to say it does nothing. That seems like a bad attitude. 
No, I agree with you. And I think part of it is just how experts think about some of these things. You know, they need absolutely clear-cut studies with 95% confidence intervals that, you know, this absolutely helps or it doesn't help. And the second is a communication failure. You know, a failure to communicate on what margin they think it helps or at what point it fails. So I think we had a little bit of both, probably. And it's just unfortunate, you know, because I, I still don't know what the exact research is out on how much masks help or don't help. But they seem so far from the different countries which have had good mask mask policies, it seems like they help. So I, I, you know, I wear a mask unless I'm working out in the park or, you know, going for a jog, a solitary run or something like that. And it is a little uncomfortable, especially yeah. because we have a heat wave going on in Washington, D.C. right now. But it's not, I mean, it's not the end of the world, you know. Yeah. So there's also some of that. I think there's also some of the research in terms of the Peltzman effect, right? This is how some people might, if you if you mandate masks, they might engage in more risk-taking behavior, on other margins, you know, this is like the seatbelt argument, right? If you mandate seatbelts and you keep, uh, you know, mandate uh, child seats and things like that, you're going to have a situation where people take risks on other margins. So we also don't know when it comes to masks so far how the Peltzman effect really plays out. So some people are saying that the people, you know, in certain states in the United States, especially the governors who are reluctant to impose a mandatory mask requirement are doing it because they want to, you know, keep the Peltzman effect at bay. And they just want people naturally to take on the practice of wearing masks. I think there's some merit in that. Yep, that uh, but, ov- but overall, I would say just better communication. There's just been on the mask thing in America, the, the failure, I think, has been entirely on, on communication and, you know, partisan politics, not yep. so much the science. Yep. And I sort of feel to be sympathetic to the authorities. I think it actually was the case that for a period of time, there really just wasn't enough PPE for healthcare workers. And that is just like a very difficult situation. And I think you just need to find a way to like communicate the tough message that like, yes, these things do seem like they have some benefit. It's also the case that right now they're being reserved for the people who are at highest risk. And that is just a tough communications challenge. Yeah, and you know, this is where your original point of walk away from the binaries is really important. Put a t-shirt around your face when you walk into a store, right? Put a handkerchief around your face and that might help. So you're absolutely right in that there is thinking about this in like a yes or no fashion has not been very helpful. And then I guess getting back to India, do you have a sense of what mask use is like there? How prevalent are masks and do people have access to them at this point? Yeah, so it seems like mask use is pretty prevalent, you know, especially when you see pictures of people out and about, things like that. People seem to be wearing masks. Like I said, India culturally has, you know, typically an upper body cloth that almost all the women wear and a lot of the men wear. So those who don't have access to masks, like, you know, when we saw those horrifying images of migrant workers walking hundreds of kilometers, they had all covered their face. And it was just, you know, I mean, you could see that they're taking the precautions that they could take even in such a difficult situation. So I think people are covering their face. Now, I don't know if it's with masks and with the correct masks and things like that. I learned now that India has also become an, become a mask exporter to the world, you know, because now masks are becoming a bit of a fashion statement. You know, people are getting tired of that, you know, medical blue thing. You know, people want to have nicer masks. 
things that are washable, things that are colorful. So I believe India is also exporting masks now, Got which it. is oh. very good to know. Good so I think ma- I think the face covering precaution in India is pretty good. Right. I think hand washing is difficult. You know, half of rural India doesn't have piped water that comes to their home, right? They need women need to carry water from a hand pump or something like that. Even places that do have piped water, you don't get it, you know, all hours of the day. Places like the slum in Dharawi, you have four to 500 people using a single bathroom facility, right? Just hand washing, something that simple, which was told to us by WHO and CDC as the number one thing we must all do is still a huge challenge in India, right? So there are challenges on those margins, right? Marketplaces are terribly crowded. So if you want to go and buy, you know, after the lockdown was lifted, everyone now suddenly all the booth stores open, right? This is long lines outside booth stores, lots of people trying to socially distance, wearing masks, but you're, you have like 2000 people standing outside a single booth shop. So those kinds of things, you know, no, you know, having very centralized marketplaces, this is land use zoning, it's just bad land use policy. But those things have been big challenges during COVID. But I think on mask use, India is pretty good. Pulling back, I want to ask some more questions about policy and sort of what policy was implemented exactly and your your take on it. But maybe just as context for that, are there ways that developing countries ought to be thinking about policy differently from developed ones when they're thinking about pandemic preparedness? So, you know, going back to the head of our conversation, I think this pandemic is here for a while. So when you're talking about flattening the curve, right, again, there are two parts. One is how you control the rate of growth and the other is your healthcare capacity, right? So this is, whether you're a developed country or a developing country, this is just something to be mindful of. The unfortunate reality is developing countries are just, they just tend to have weaker healthcare capacity. So as a consequence, they need to impose more restrictions on movement and economic activity, but they also can't afford that. You know, this is the developing country conundrum, right? So America can afford to say, hey, we have shelter in place for five months. And, you know, we're going to impose these orders. And for all the people who've lost their jobs, like, you know, restaurants and waiters and salons and places like that, you know, we're going to give you a stimulus package for small businesses. Now, developing countries don't have that option either. And the reason is, one, they are fiscally constrained. They can't just say we allow, we are going to announce a three trillion stimulus package like the United States. The other part of it is we don't have good targeting, you know, and this is true across the board. Now, in the beginning, I said there are lots of differences between developing countries. But one area where, you know, a lot of these nations are similar is they have a huge informal sector, right? India has huge informal sector, both, you know, about they say about 80 to 90% of the workers work in the informal sector. About 60 to 70% of the businesses are not registered or operate in the informal sector, or sort of, you know, in the shadow, shadow of the formal economy. It's the same in, say, Kenya. It's the same in Ethiopia. It's the same in Brazil, right? The numbers might be slightly different in terms of the proportion of the informal sector, but all of them have a large informal sector. Now, an informal sector means it's hard to regulate, but it's also hard to stimulate, right? It's both. So if we open up the economy, it's very difficult to regulate social distancing norms. If you have a good industry health and safety inspection system, then you can reopen factories and send your inspectors and say, okay, everyone's standing eight feet apart. Everyone's covering their face. We're having three different shifts that don't intermingle and things like that. It's almost impossible to do that when most of your economy operates you know, informally, and you don't even know who they are and how they operate. So that's one part of it. It's also very difficult to stimulate, like even in the United States, which has, you know, a 
in terms of formalization of economy and registering of firms and records very very good on those things but even there it was so hard to give small businesses loans right congress said that this is a problem that the banks need to resolve the government just can't do it even checking everyone's true unemployment status or records before you know they they give them the relief it was really hard so even in developed countries with excellent you know formalized setup and good state capacity and good record keeping this is a tough task and in developing countries just almost impossible so in india your typical you know fiscal and monetary stimulus they just don't work as well so this is one major difference between developed and developing yeah. countries i think we need to be very cognizant about the percentage of economic activity and the population in informal sector in the informal sector the second part of it is a consequence of this is also people living in informal sectors right like slums are technically not recognized they are people who have decided to live in the center of the city breaking all the regular rules of you know your housing and land use rules because of very bad regulation in the rest of the city when it comes to improving you know the available quantity of housing or commercial use or land use and things like that so one very very large similarity across all these countries is they have very large slums now of course dharavi in india is the largest slum right so the other other indian cities have lots of slums they tend to be smaller and a little bit more spread out but it's the same problem in ethiopia it's the same problem in kenya it's the same problem in brazil slums are a really big problem for any pandemic and particularly so for covid it's very very hard to create containment zones so you know that's another area where you know developing countries need to think about the problem a little bit different from developed countries third is developing countries can't take some of the you know recommendations and translate it easily so in the us they said you know we have a shortage of hand sanitizer everyone just wash their hands and don't empty out hand sanitizer from the stores because we need it for the healthcare professionals fair enough in india i would say the opposite we don't have good delivery of piped water so we got to go the you know this is going to sound a little merry antonet but if you don't have piped water use hand sanitizer you know it's a little bit of so it's a little bit of an upside down world but that's what we need in india yeah i never would have thought of that problem right so, so in india we need to create common you know hand washing stations which is something no developed country would do they say oh people are congregating you should wash your hands at home but right. in india you can't wash your hands at home so we do need hand washing stations at bus stops and train stations for instance I think we should have distributed, you know, everywhere we go there should be we should really scale up capacity on producing hand sanitizer and distribute that very freely. I recently saw a tweet where you know there is a company called Chick C H I K in India which you know make shampoos and things like that. It's a consumer goods company and they are making 1 rupee sachets. 1 rupee is like, you know, about 1.3 cents or something like that US US dollar cents. So it's really cheap, you know, they these tiny sachets that you just, you know, like a travel single use hand sanitizer. And all the elites were up in arms that it's single use plastic, right? I'm sure there'll be some Americans up in arms about how India is increasing its single use plastic. But it's the only way out when you're faced with a pandemic and, you know, you don't have good piped water delivery. So the, this is a long-winded way of saying that each developing country really needs to understand its own constraints. right yeah. it's very difficult to borrow or imitate from other countries what to do and what not to do it just doesn't work you know what's working in pakistan is not working in india what's working in bihar is not working in kerala so 
even locally, there's a lot of variation. And that's the thing, you know, that's the governance puzzle to really keep in mind. That makes a lot of sense. To what extent are there the resources in India to sort of design a bespoke policy response? Is there like, I guess, both like a a research sector and like a equivalent of the CDC and like local public health agencies and just the capacity to sort of do this type of massive policy design this quickly? Yes and no. So all these agencies exist in India, right? So you have an equivalent for all the central nodal agencies on pretty much anything, right? Whether it is medical care or arbitration, you have it in India. Now, the problem is that a lot of what they design is mimicked from other countries, right? And I've written about this a little bit with Alex Tabarok. We wrote a paper called Premature Imitation and India's Flailing State, where we talk about how India mimics other countries. Indian elites borrow ideas from the developed world too soon in a way that Indian capacity cannot execute those ideas. So single-use plastic in the middle of a global pandemic is a fantastic, you know, example of that. You know, you want to get rid of single-use plastic straws, you want to get rid of, you know, single-use plastic sachets of hand sanitizer that makes sense in the developed world. It just doesn't make sense in the developing world where you don't have water. So we need to think about that. So all these agencies exist. They are staffed with very smart people, very well-educated people. These people come from, you know, American universities and British universities. But there is a lot of mimicking of those, of the policies in those countries. Now, to answer the second part of your question, I think at the same time, we do have a lot of local, you know, sort of contextual thinking. So Dharavi, you know, which I mentioned is the largest slum in Bombay, the way they contained the problem in Dharavi is an extremely local solution. It's hard to mimic that anywhere except Dharavi. It's hard to do that anywhere other than the the municipal corporation in Bombay, which is the BMC. And that is a great example of a government agency, which has been around for a long time, that has actually learned from its local problems and capacities and implemented a solution that actually functions. How did they do it? Oh, how do they do it? There's no straightforward answer to the question. So, you know, I'll I'll give you a slightly longish answer. So I think it's a few things. So the first is, you know, the BMC is one of the older municipal corporations in India, you know, dates back to pre-colonial India, or rather colonial India, a pre-independence India. And they are very, very well resourced, right? So it's one of the richer municipal corporations. They actually have money. They actually have manpower and infrastructure. So this is something to keep in mind. That's not true for most municipal corporations in India. So Bombay is an outlier in that sense. Now, they did a few things. So the first is the government actually appointed really good people and sort of created a war room or a task force for COVID in Mumbai more generally and to deal with Dharavi specifically. So I think Ms. Ashwini Bhide, who is the additional municipal commissioner in Mumbai, she is one of the best civil servants we have in India. She was responsible for getting the Mumbai metro off the ground or underground, you know. So she is really fantastic. So some of it is just you pick the right person for the right job, you give them the money and the infrastructure and control over a situation and, you know, you let them execute the decisions. Now, some of the Dharavi, you know, containment zone policies were actually quite clever. So they decided that they have a lot of manpower and they're going to deploy manpower for contact tracing. So they had about 2,000 to 2,500 city workers who literally went door to door. 
The reason this is important in Dharavi is we don't have records. We don't know who lives where. We don't have address proof. We don't have utility bills, you know, to sort of figure out what's going on in a particular area. So you really need to do this door-to-door kind of contact tracing, surveys, interviews. Did you meet so-and-so? What was the last time you were in that part of Dharavi? And, you know, so on and so forth. Now, if you allow me to brag a little bit about Emergent Ventures, one of, you know, the two of our Emergent Ventures grantees have contributed to the success of Dharavi. So this is Akash Bhatia and Puru Botla. They are two fantastic MIT alums. They run something called Infinite Analytics in India, which, you know, their main job is analyzing consumer metadata for the private sector. But as soon as COVID hit, they said, oh, we can do all this large scale, you know, mobility and you know, individual mobility, data analysis, we can think about contact tracing and how do we help the government. So they repurposed their entire firm in a matter of a week with help from an Emerging Ventures grant to just dedicate themselves to COVID. And so they're doing amazing work. Now, I'll give you one example of how they helped in Dharavi. So initially, the containment zones were set up geographically right? So this was just, you know, let's say we have, you know, think of like a Rubik's cube or something like that. And you know, you just divide that in eighths or sixteenths and you say each one is a containment zone. And this is because most people who are governing Dharavi don't live in Dharavi, right? All these additional municipal corporators and things like that, they don't actually live there. They don't know how people move there. So what they found, what Akash and Puru found using the, you know, meta mobility data analysis was that people were mingling between zones because they were living in one zone, but the toilets they used were in another zone. Because in slums, not every dwelling has its own toilet. There's, like I said, there's one toilet facility for about 500 people, roughly. They were going to another zone to buy milk. And the way they figured it out is by cell phone mobility data, aggregated, not individual. So this is not any kind of surveillance or spying that Akash and Puru were doing on these. And then they went back to the BMC, you know, and they sort of worked with Ms. Bide and other people. And they said, look, I think you need to reorganize your containment zones. And the BMC actually took their advice. You know, they changed their containment zones in a, by actually accommodating how people move within a day. Right. Where do they go for their milk? Where do they go to the bathroom and accordingly change the containment zones and then close them off? So that was one, you know, really. Yeah, that was a great move. I'm so thrilled that Emergent Ventures grantees did it. I mean, I would have been thrilled if anyone did it. But now I know I'm just like a proud parent. I'm just (laughs) bragging about them. But they did this amazing thing. And I mean, this affects thousands of people, you know, potentially millions of people, because people living in Dharavi sort of serve all of Mumbai in terms of lots of services that they provide. So that was one. The other was, you know, aggressive door-to-door contact tracing, not just, you know, cell phone or app or something like that. And the third is they immediately extracted individuals and entire families and put them in quarantine facilities, right? So Dharavi was, they realized what a black box it is and how hard it is to penetrate and understand what's going on. They also understood that it's very, very hard. If they don't contain Dharavi, they can't contain Mumbai. Because everyone's domestic help and security guard and cleaner, you know, and the person who provides the services, the person who sells them, you know, their leather bags, right? The person in many cases who comes and solves their IT problems, all these people live in Dharavi. So if you don't contain Dharavi, you've contaminated all of Mumbai. So there was both the right incentive and the right talent and the right infrastructure. And thanks to something like EV, also the right technology 
to solve this problem. Now, I know from, you know, conversations with Akash and Puru that they have offered this to many other municipal corporations. Some of them are, you know, thinking about taking the help, others not so much. But it is a question of, you know, different municipal corporations just don't have the same quality of leadership. They don't have the same money. They don't have the same infrastructure. So there are those kinds of differences. So Dharavi is, you know, really, I I think, a case study on on how to contain a pandemic given the constraints of a a developing country. But it's also very difficult to mimic lessons from Dharavi to any other municipal corporation. That makes a lot of sense. And then what was the outcome eventually? Like, were cases introduced? And to what extent were they able to really contain it, or at least so far? So the rate of growth in Dharavi has really plummeted. That's what's going on. So it's not that Dharavi has zero cases. You know, it's not a success on that margin. It's that the rate of growth of cases was dramatically contained. It's actually lower right now than the rest of Mumbai. And it's also lower right now than the rest of India. So, you know, in that sense, it is a success. This is not to say that it won't flare up again, you know, as things are relaxed or it won't come back. You know, those issues obviously exist anywhere. So Dharavi needs like just this constant attention. But the victory in Dharavi was really one of how to do contact tracing through one of India's greatest strengths, which is manpower, you know? So you take down oral testimonies using manpower. Now, I have to say this obviously had some cost. There were a lot of, you know, Bombay municipal workers who were severely affected. Some have died because of COVID, because they were part of this exercise, not just in Dharavi, but in other places. So it's not that this is costless, right? It's a huge cost to society, but at the same time, it's a huge benefit because Dharavi just has so many people. Right. And we need to open up the Dharavi economy because there are a lot of poor people who work in this billion dollar sort of industry and you can't keep it closed down forever. Right. Yeah. So it's a it's a it's a bit of it's it's trying to understand all these different problems. Another thing was, you know, when the the first lockdown was supposed to be 21 days, then they extended it by another 19 days. So at the end of 40 days, there was a lot of movement that was going on in Dharavi. And people like Akash and Puru, who study the meta mobility patterns, they figured that this is not actually people going around in Dharavi. They're people leaving Dharavi to going to go uh-huh. back to rural areas. They were leaving the city. And that kind of information given very quickly to people who are looking at Dharavi can say, oh, now we need a slightly different strategy for containing Dharavi. There are a lot of people who are leaving. So we need to inform other states on how to contain and we need to think about who is allowed back into these containment zones. So it was just like a great case study, just very hard to replicate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess I had expected that there would just be no way to contain COVID in a slum. And so just big victory that they're able to have a success there. Absolutely. And and I really hope it continues. And Dharavi is a very large slum. So I hope they manage to do this in smaller slums. I hope the other outcome of this is to seriously take informal sector seriously in India. You know, I mean, it's it's a really, we normally just walk past slums in India, the elites, the, the people who are governing, the policymakers, you know, some people hold their nose and, you know, we just go about it like this is ordinary business and it's become part of our landscape. Right. And only when there is such a serious problem and they're a threat, not just to their own health, but also across the city that we suddenly take notice and say, oh, we're worried about slums. So I think we need to think about housing policy in cities, right? Land use policy in city very seriously that we don't have these kinds of slums emerge in the first place. Right. And that will make it easier to contain it in a pandemic. You know, should there be another one in the future? I hope not. 
want to ask you some more questions about the lockdown more generally. You mentioned that in India, it was one of the strictest lockdowns in the world. So I guess I'm curious about, to start off with, what exactly did that involve? I guess I expected that even the United States would be almost impossible to implement, but particularly somewhere like India, how are you getting rural people to comply with this? Are they complying? And if so, like, how are they eating? Yes. What was the actual policy? I guess as it was designed and then sort of as it was actually implemented? Okay. So by around March 20th in India, the number of cases was small. There were only about 500 cases, but they were growing very, very quickly. So I think the doubling rate at that time, if memory serves me well, was about doubling every three days, you know, or doubling three to four days. So it was going, you know, there was real cause for concern. So what Prime Minister Modi did was he did a one day curfew where he said, you know, everyone stay at home on a Sunday and he kind of did like a test run. And then a few days after that, on March 24th, he just announced a three-week-long lockdown. Okay, and now there are a couple of things to keep in mind. The lockdown that was announced was that nobody can go anywhere and that one shouldn't go anywhere. But they didn't very clearly communicate what were the activities that were allowed, right? Are healthcare professionals allowed to go everywhere? It wasn't clarified in the original speech, right? Can you go and buy milk and bread from your local grocer? right? That wasn't clarified in the original speech. So there was once again, a huge communication failure. So there was a communication success in the sense that it was very clear that Prime Minister Modi was taking the pandemic seriously, you know, that he was actually listening to epidemiologists and medical experts. Because, you know, in India, sometimes things can go either way, right? Like there is this whole thing about homeopathy and Ayurveda. Of course, there are also the really loonies, you know, who think, think drinking cow urine is going to cure you of cancer to COVID to everything. So sometimes, you know, even the leadership can go slightly off and not rely on, on good information. So the good thing about Prime Minister Modi's lockdown and the communication of the lockdown was, one, he took it very seriously. He communicated very clearly that lots of people are dying across the world, that this spreads, that, you know, COVID is kind of like this clever virus, you know, which which spreads even when you don't know when the other person is sick. He did it in a smart, colloquial way. And he said that, you know, everyone needs to support this. Everyone must sacrifice. Everyone must stay at home. So on that front, it was great. Now, on, there were certain aspects which were very horribly planned, right? Or rather not planned at all. So first, they didn't announce any relief for people who lose their wages for 21 days because of a restrictive lockdown, right? So now for someone who's earning daily wages, if you say that you can't earn daily wages and you can't go to work tomorrow, maybe they can survive a couple of days, maybe even a couple of weeks on their savings. But Typically, people work on working on daily wages in India don't have much, you know, social security or savings or infrastructure to rely on. So you saw that all the daily wage laborers, they suddenly hit the train stations and the bus stations and the trains and buses weren't running. So you saw, you know, massive, like in New Delhi, you were like, you know, there were 20,000 people at the train station. There were 40,000 people at the bus stations just waiting right? So you were trying to enforce social distancing, but in a week, you you made the problem worse. So that's one kind of miscommunication. The second kind of miscommunication was just, you know, the police who are enforcing this at a local level didn't know what they were supposed to do. So there were some places where they were very sensible and they, you know, organized the local markets and they allowed people to go and do their, you know, most basic jobs with social distancing. There are places where doctors were beaten up by the police, 
you know, severe head injuries because they said you shouldn't be out right now. And Prime Minister Modi has declared a lockdown. So we got a bit of everything, mostly because of very bad communication. So that was what was going on at the time. Then the next stage was that all the migrant workers, about 50 million, I'm told, you know, in India who live in rural areas, their families are in rural areas, they go seasonally or, you know, for a bulk of the year to urban, large metropolitan areas, they work and they send the money home. It's very difficult. All these people are in the informal sector. They work on daily or weekly wages. Very difficult to survive in such a circumstance. And as I mentioned before, because they're in the informal sector, you can't give them unemployment or stimulus. Like it's just not easy to target them. So some policy needs to be announced and nothing was announced. And what you saw, I mean, I can't tell you the horror of this. There were people literally walking with their kids and all their life's belongings on their back and their head They were walking hundreds of kilometers to reach home because there were no trains and there were no buses and the government made no provision for them to go home and they couldn't afford rent where they were living. And this is not a couple of hundred people. This is, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, potentially millions, if you think about it over a four month period. There was some great journalistic work on the ground, you know, people like Barkadat, literally like journalists walking alongside these people. They didn't even have a moment to pause to give an interview to a TV journalist because they just needed to get home. So this was, you know, I think one of the worst failures of the lockdown. So we haven't seen this kind of internal migration since the partition in India. So it was horrifying. People died walking on their way home. They died of road accidents. They died of dehydration, starvation. There was one particularly horrific incident of some people who were resting near a train track or on a train track. And, you know, one of the goods trains sort of went over them because they thought no trains were running. And and they died. So there was some real horrors that I, I can't, you know, imagine that we had a state policy response like this. So it was, you know, at one level callousness, you know, the Indian elites who are governing just don't see these people. They're invisible to them. On the other hand, it was also even once they were made visible, there was no real policy response because it's very hard to target them. You know, so there were some provisions saying, you know, all people, you know, just show up at your local ration stores and, you know, you're going to get free rice and pulses and, you know, some basic food provisions. So there were some relief, you know, package announcements like that, but just nowhere in the proportion that was required. And once again, lots of paperwork, you know, lots of bureaucracy and paperwork. So I think the poorest in India sort of bore the brunt of the lockdown in a way that the rich people didn't. I think that's a little bit true across the world. You know, even in the United States, it's becoming very clear that people who are poorer, people from minority communities, they are working more on the front lines. You know, they are the essential workers. They are the checkout counter people at grocery stores. They're just more exposed. But I think in India, it just took this whole new version of you know, horror imposed by bad state policy and bad communication of even, you know, reasonable state policy. So the odd thing was that the poor people were very sympathetic. They agreed, even even then they were willing to support the prime minister's vision. There was no violence, you know, nothing like that. They were willing to comply with the lockdown, but they were just like, you know, what are we supposed to do? So that part of the lockdown was horrific. So it was a huge mistake. The other part of the lockdown, which was a huge mistake, was what you pointed out earlier in the conversation, which is 
one thought that if you have a three-week lockdown, you would quickly scale up testing and healthcare capacity and have pop-up quarantine centers and hospitals. You know, China did this, right? China literally built hospitals in in a week that could treat 3,000 patients and things like that. And one was hoping that's the kind of response that comes from Prime Minister Modi's government, but it just didn't happen. So the problem was they kept pushing the problem away, like they kept kicking the can down the road. So the first lockdown was 21 days, right? Then it was extended until May 3rd, which was another 19 days. So you're 40 days into the lockdown. Then there was a phase three, which was a less restrictive version. It was another 14 days. Then a phase four of the lockdown, which is another 14 days. So India was in lockdown for like a really long time, March 24th till 31st May. That's a long, long time. yeah, that's like close to 70 days, right? So it's a it's a really long lockdown. So this was the way it was handled, which was bad policy. And as one would expect, the moment you lifted the lockdown, all the migration happened. So we transported what was originally an urban problem and we made it now a pan-India and a rural problem, right? The people who are migrating are migrating from the poorest districts. So we've sent COVID back to the poorest districts in India, in rural India. So that's one kind of a problem. And the other is, as soon as you lift the lockdown, the cases increase and you never really increase the capacity to a level where you didn't have to flatten the curve with a severe lockdown. So now what you see is anytime the cases spike in a particular city or a town, they impose the lockdown again, right? So it's really ruled by lockdown. There is no other sensible response to this policy. So that's kind of the problem in India. Right. So, you know, this is, the, this is the big picture of why the lockdown went wrong. That's really helpful. And then... I guess on the aspect of sort of increasing capacity during the lockdown, sort of making good use of that time, was the problem that there was just no way for India to like scale up as quickly as needed, either because they didn't have the resources or because there are just lags that are too long, or were there things that could have been done to better take advantage of that time? So a little bit of both. So I think things that could have been done were, you know, ICMR is a central agency, you know, with all the benefits of pretty much, you know, your your union government backing you. They could have easily found, you know, some exemptions, tried to increase manpower, try to, you know, approve more labs and things like that. Now, when it comes to healthcare in terms of like hospitals and things like that, that's a state subject in India. Now, states are very fiscally constrained in India. Right. So this is not just about COVID. It's an overall governance issue. So in India, the states are they don't have much revenue raising authority or capacity. So there are very few areas where the states can legislate and raise their own revenue. So, you know, the large ones are property and alcohol. All other taxes are usually centralized in India. Right now that the taxes are centralized in India of the central pool of revenue, only about 40 percent is shared with the states. So there is a genuine fiscal constraint, you know, that the states face. So even the richer states have this problem. The poorer states obviously have a bigger problem. This is why they were so keen to open alcohol sales after the lockdown, because states were literally struggling uh-huh. for revenue sources, right? So that's one thing to keep in mind. So it it is hard. So, you know, you, you might say, okay, Bihar is expecting a lot of people to come back from Mumbai and New Delhi. You know, it wants to increase the number of quarantine centers and the number of hospitals. And they did try to do that in all fairness. They were good about quarantining people and contact tracing. But 
it is very difficult for that state, given its fiscal resources, to just suddenly do something like what China did, you know, which is have a new super speciality hospital in, in yeah. you know, two weeks or something like that. So that's one kind of problem. The other problem is in India, we don't have good local municipal governance. And this, again, there's a long history to why we don't have it. The more recent history is the original constitutional scheme in 1950 just did not accommodate a layer of local governance. They left it to the states to, you know, legislate and create municipalities and things like that. So India doesn't have a functional municipal governance level, which raises its own tax revenue, which has the ability to spend it on public health and sanitation and, you know, those kinds of features. This is also why, you know, you have big problems in India in terms of public health, like open defecation, you know, very high infant mortality, terrible quality of water, you know, so on and so forth. So this is the second kind of government constraint that you cannot change in three weeks. You know, three weeks is, or even three years is too little to change this kind of a, of a constrained state capacity. So because of these two reasons, the real action, which is on the ground, which is contact tracing, you know, going door to door, making sure that you can, you know, set up a new hospital, you know, flying doctors, those things just weren't possible. But at the union government level, a lot more could be done. I mean, you need to really think about bottlenecks, right? Who is manufacturing your PPE equipment? Can we encourage them? Can we give them subsidies? Can we give them clearances and permission to operate 24 hours a day instead of imposing the industrial inspection system on them and saying you can only operate eight hours a day? So there are so many other things that could have been done that weren't done. And then trying to get a sense of for the average rural Indian, how were they affected by the lockdown? Was it just like countrywide actually being in practice imposed? And just how are you sustaining yourself if you're you're like a poor person in like a rural area and need to keep going during that period of time? So my understanding was that in rural areas, the imposition of the lockdown was not weaker in the sense of that the rules weren't different, but the execution was different. You know, people realize that there are little to no cases in a particular village or town and, you know, they let them go about in that village, but then they they restricted mobility to cross village lines or, you know, cross township lines and things like that. So that's, you're absolutely right in that the execution of the lockdown was a little bit different, right? Also, a lot of the manpower, which is, you know, your policing was moved to the urban areas because that's where they needed it more. So it was a weaker lockdown. Now, the way they sustained themselves, I don't know if this is a blessing or a curse, but because we don't have a single large market in India across everything. Like, you know, we have different states, we have checkpoints across states, we haven't developed a good model of treating India as one market. Until very recently, we used to have different taxation, which means it was very hard for states to, you know, for goods to cross borders and things like that. So because of that, a lot of the supply chains for food are extremely local, right? So this is your elite's version of farm-to-table dream come true. But this is a reality in India, right? So your milkman probably doesn't live that far from you do. The people who are supplying your vegetables probably don't live that far. Now for cities, they need to be trucked in and there were a lot of problems in cities initially. So the first 10 days of the lockdown, you know, there were shortages of milk and vegetables and things like that. But in rural areas, that was just simply not a problem. So if you're a poor person in a rural area, you know, life is anyway different, but I don't think it was that much different because of the lockdown cutting supply chains. It was different because you have fewer employment opportunities, right? Maybe you work at a handicrafts 
industry that is supposed to be selling paintings or garments and now there's no demand for it because there was a severe lockdown. So in on those margins, rural areas were a lot more, you know, affected. That makes sense. How is the country faring economically more generally? Poorly, very, very poorly. There are two aspects to this. One aspect is India had a growth slowdown even before COVID. So there has been a growth slowdown since 2000. 17, it has been a significant slump since then. One part of it was the demonetization policy, which was, you know, canceling about 85% of the currency in India overnight, causing this huge problem, you know, of currency shortage where people can't transact with one another. It wasn't that different from the lockdown. It was just a, a huge disaster. So that was one cause of, you know, a slowdown. The other was the goods and services tax. So India switched from an indirect taxes, its indirect taxation system, you know, from different states imposing their own indirect taxes to a unified goods and services tax. Now, of course, we didn't do this the smart way. We did it the Indian way. You know, there are five different tax labs and 12 different classifications, and it just caused a huge disruption in the Indian economy. So these are two clear points where more recently there has been a reason for the slowdown, but there has been a more general slowdown in the last decade. Right. So India was sort of like roaring in its growth rates from, say, the mid 1995 till 2011. And this was all the gains from liberalization and embracing markets and, you know, India's tech sector taking off and India becoming an exporting country and things like that. But from, say, about 2011, 2012, you know, the growth. So it, it's not a recession. It's a reduction in the rate of growth. Right. So right. India was growing much faster. It started growing less fast. So some people have termed this a growth recession. You know, that's the word that some economists use for it, but it's not an actual recession. Post-pandemic is the first time India is expected to have a recession in a very, very long time. That is, it is actually going to, or expected to go into, into negative rates of growth for more than two quarters. That's the expectation. So, you know, the IMF and all these people, everyone's been revising India's growth rate estimates down. So, it was about 5%. It came down to about 3%. Now it's hovering around 1%, the estimate. And I think the longer the pandemic continues, the more likely that India will go into negative growth rates. So there is a very serious problem with the Indian economy. Some people trace back the slowdown in growth, not just to some bad policies like demonetization and and the GST execution, but more so to all factor markets. You know, in India, there are so many bottlenecks in all your factor markets. There are so many bottlenecks when it comes to regulatory clearances, you know, things like that. And initially, it didn't matter too much because Indian growth rates just really took off by integrating into global markets. But as India was growing, these structural bottlenecks really started to matter, you know. So that has been the, the big explanation around this. And COVID is not going to help. It's only pushing India into lower and lower growth rates. And then I was wondering, you know, in this context of a lockdown that seems like it was really sort of imperfectly implemented, and then all of these economic risks. What has like the public reaction to the lockdown been? Has it been popular or unpopular? Was it politicized in the way that it has been in the United States? It was mostly unpopular and it was a little bit politicized. Now I'll tell you the puzzle that none of us can figure out. Prime Minister Modi, who was, you know, the face of the lockdown because he was the one who, you know, conceptualized it and announced it, is still incredibly popular in India. 
it seems like his approval ratings are like Teflon. They just stick. They don't go down, you know. So that's sort of the conundrum. So people thought the lockdown was very bad. They were very upset about how the poor were treated. You know, there's also a lot of fatigue. You know, after 70 days of a severe lockdown, there's just so much fatigue that sets in. It has been disproportionately hard on women who traditionally do a lot more of the household work. It has been disproportionately hard on the poor, naturally. I mean, everything is hard on the poor, but this particularly so when they can't get access to employment opportunities and they can't get access to services. Their children don't have internet access at home. So, you know, now suddenly their kids are not going to get get educated. So, so many stresses like that. So there's a huge discussion on it. The lockdown was very unpopular from my understanding of it. A lot of people made it partisan and did blame Prime Minister Modi. But somehow his individual approval ratings don't seem to be dropping. So there's something weird going on there. So something I think, you know, even I, I've, I've noticed that even especially the poor people in India, despite all the stresses imposed by the state being disproportionately borne by them, they seem to be very sympathetic to, you know, doing something as a community or sacrificing for the greater good. It's kind of remarkable, you know, even when the migrants were walking back and they were complaining about how the state and, you know, the people of India have forgotten about them. They still understood why all this was happening and they were sympathetic to sacrifices that need to be made, which to me is just really remarkable culturally. And I haven't quite got a handle on that because a lot of the stuff that I read, it was obviously written by the elites and they are scathing in their criticism of the government. The people are less so, you know, in, in terms of the scathing criticism, but the policy is unpopular. No one wanted it. Yeah, that is really amazing that people in such a bad position were be able to were able to be so sympathetic to like the reason a policy existed. Feels hard to imagine in in the United States. It was the same during demonetization, you know. I mean, the poor people face this huge crunch. They're standing for hours and days, you know, waiting to get money out of ATMs or out of banks. You know, they're not able to pay. People are dying because you couldn't pay to get into a hospital. You know, they're dying because they couldn't buy food. But the poor were still very supportive of a policy because they thought that Prime Minister Modi is trying to eliminate corruption and, that, you know, money that was ill-gotten and due to tax evasion. Of course, that's a misunderstanding of, you know, basic principles of economics, but they were still very supportive in terms of, you know, someone's vision of the greater good for a corruption-free India or something yeah. like that. So it's it's really remarkable how that has worked out culturally. If you notice, India doesn't have violence and riots over these issues. You know, I mean, the number of migrants waiting at bus stops were in really large number. You know, we're talking about thousands, sometimes tens of thousands at train stations. No violence, no vandalism, right? So actually, it's the poorer people in India who have cooperated to, you know, make these policies even the minor successes that they have been. Is there a opposition party that is making any attempts to sort of pin the prime minister with the sort of responsibility for the lockdown and sort of frame themselves as like the anti-lockdown party? Yes and no. So India's opposition is incredibly weak right now. So, you know, the Indian National Congress, which is sort of like the grand old party of India, is the party of Nehru and Indira Gandhi and things like that. That's the party which is in opposition right now. Rahul Gandhi is, you know, their, their leader. 
And there has been a lot of criticism from them on how the lockdown was handled badly. But this is a very elite sort of criticism. It's not a widespread movement because the opposition overall is very weak. The other thing that's happened in India, and I think this has happened a little bit across the world, is legislatures have completely stopped functioning during the pandemic. You know, the executive is functioning. The courts are somewhat functional through, you know, you know, uh, virtual and video conferencing and things like that. But the legislatures have just completely stopped doing business. So the main opposition, which usually comes from the floor of the legislation where parliamentarians are criticizing the government, that's always been weak in India. It's particularly weak given the very few seats and, you know, the poor leadership by Rahul Gandhi. But during the pandemic, it's completely disappeared. So, you know, you have a little bit of opposition on TV news channels and Twitter, but it doesn't amount to much. Yeah, the state parties, which, you know, the state governments, which are a different party than the, you know, BJP, which is Prime Minister Modi's party, they have a little bit more opposition. So, for instance, Maharashtra is a non-BJP governed state. And they have had their own policies and they have opposed some of the lockdown policies much more. And they have instituted their own version of lockdown policies. So there is some of that happening in a federal sense, but not in a parliamentary sense. So I want to ask you about some of the policy recommendations that you made in your paper with Alex Tabarek. And we've actually touched on a few of them at this point. So maybe instead I'll ask more broadly, are there policies today that still haven't been implemented that you think it would be like particularly useful at this point for the Indian government to pursue? I still think that taking a serious look at regulatory bottlenecks to make sure that we can scale up PPE, you know, we can scale up pharmaceutical medication, you know, scale up production of masks, not just for India, but the globe, you know, things like that. I still think India needs to solve them. Some of the stuff that we pointed out in our paper, such as removing the import tariffs, that was low hanging fruit. They did it immediately, but a lot more work needs to be done in that area. So that I would, I would stick by. I would say, you know, our original idea about trying to repurpose buildings into quarantine centers as the numbers increase or, you know, you know, repurposing, you know, hotels, that industry is just completely died right now because tourism is dead, you know, using that for some of the quarantine facilities where, you know, the rich, if they can pay, they pay for their own quarantine facilities, but they're comfortable. I think those kinds of policy recommendations still have a lot of play as, you know, the pandemic keeps going on. I think our suggestion of providing hand sanitizers when you can't easily deliver piped water, I think that that is just so relevant, more so today than ever before. I think a couple of our recommendations on, you know, the relief package for the poor, I think that is still relevant. Even now, we are asking poorer people who don't have good paperwork to go to their particular ration, you know, store designated in their jurisdiction and produce the correct card. And, you know, then they get their supplies. So what we suggested was just take any ID. It's fine. You know, we're trying to provide relief. We need to do it in the least bureaucratic way possible. So I think these are ongoing problems. And I think those recommendations are still quite relevant and just have a lot of play. I think our specific recommendation on, you know, change this tariff and improve that particular lab, you know, obviously things have changed in the last three months. So like I said, at the time, I think when we wrote the paper, ICMR had approved 130 odd labs and now it's already a thousand. So, you know, some of those things have happened. I think the only, I don't know, I don't think we wrote about this in the paper, but the only policy that I might have changed my mind on since early April is the closure of schools. 
I think it's an extremely costly policy to keep schools closed for as long as they've been already. And there's a second issue in India, you know, there's tremendous inequality in India, both economic and social because of the caste system. And education is one way of reducing that inequality. And what we see during the pandemic across the world is that the pandemic has actually made access to education more unequal. So children whose parents have education, who can provide good internet, who can you know afford to give kids their own tablet or laptop or smartphone, those kids are much more likely to be enrolled in online schooling, be engaged and learn. You know, that's just not the case for a very large proportion of India. So I'm rethinking the aspect about school closures, you know, which I might have supported initially in the lockdown. You know, I think I I would really think about that. We've recently given an Emerging Ventures grant to someone who's trying to do voice-based education. You know, this is to really reach the disenfranchised. So you record all your lessons on voice and everyone has a cell phone in India, even if they don't have a smartphone. And a lot of people have a smartphone. So, you know, they take pictures of the homework on WhatsApp and they send it across. They've started, you know, his policy. This is Raman Behel. You know, we just gave him this grant and his policy is there's a local grocery store where you leave the lesson plans for the week for the whole village. And, you know, they pick them up and the rest of it is done through voice. So I think there are some important ways by which we need to address this. So one of the things Alex and I talked about in the paper was mobile phone penetration and how we really need to tap into that. India has excellent mobile phone, you know, penetration. So can you do telehealth? right? Telemedicine so that, you know, people need to congregate less at testing centers and hospitals and, you know, they can still get treated. So we just need to think about those policies a little bit more. But one of the things I do worry about and keeps me up at night is schooling. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. What are the chances that remote schooling is a possibility? How likely do you think it is that you end up with some sort of remote schooling type of situation in in much of India? So it's you know, very, very high, you know, variation across different states, across different communities. So, of course, the elite have just gone online seamlessly, right? The Indian elite are having the same troubles as the American elite, which is, you know, both parents are working. How do we make sure the students are engaged? They don't get much time outdoors to play with their friends, you know, that kind of a thing. When we're talking about people in the middle class, they have managed to cope reasonably well. Right. So even if every family doesn't have a separate, you know, smartphone, laptop or something like that for each child, they have managed to procure these devices at relatively low cost. And, you know, they do manage to get Internet, smartphone access. The teachers have been exceptional. They've gone above and beyond, you know, taking voice calls, tutoring in person, things like that. So that's going on. Now, the big problem is the largest group of the poorest people, right? This is rural areas where schools are anyway not as well functioning. Plus, parents may not have internet access, smartphones, even a regular phone. There are many cases where the entire family or the household has only one phone, right? And it usually goes with the parent, you know, the the father will take the phone and use it for farming or whatever the day job is. So those are the families which are at most risk. And this is about 40% of India's school going kids. That's the estimate. Now, of course, these things are changing, right? I mean, it's been three months into the pandemic. If it goes longer, hopefully, you know, there are corporate social responsibility initiatives where people are willing to give free laptops and smartphones to children from underprivileged backgrounds, things like that. So these numbers will hopefully change. But the question you asked is true depending on which group you're talking about. 
for the most disenfranchised, which is struggling for piped water, electricity, internet. I mean, schooling, online schooling is just nowhere on the radar. And oddly enough, those are the those are the students who needed the most to work their way up in terms of social and economic mobility. So the inequality aspect just very worrying. So I want to make sure we get to some of your other research. So maybe wrapping up a bit on COVID. What's your take on just overall how India's reaction has been so far? And I don't know, would you have expected it to go better than this, worse than this? So I think globally, India's reaction has not been that bad. Okay. And I'll I'll tell you in what sense I mean this. India has not had like, you know, terrible leadership or like just unscientific thinking where they say, oh, the virus really doesn't exist. Oh, it's really not a threat. You know, look at me. I'm going to be totally fine. You know, it doesn't have that kind of nonsense going on at the top levels of leadership. So in that sense, the Indian strategy has been successful. The second sense it's been successful is they took stock of their healthcare capacity very early and they figured out that they need, you know, to impose restrictive measures. Now, having said that, once you figured out a policy, you know, that that the government wants to impose or enforce, you actually have to enforce and execute that policy correctly, right? So if you decide that we need some stringent lockdowns because we have very weak healthcare capacity, then you've got to do the lockdown properly in a way that there isn't this kind of, you know, adverse impact on lives and livelihood and, you know, just people's well-being. On those margins, India has completely failed. So that's the that's the way I would set it up. If we think about, you know, where to go forward, I think India still has a lot of low-hanging fruit, like, you know, the regulatory bottlenecks, how to get things moving. I think that it still hasn't figured out. Some areas where I particularly worry is about 200,000 people have not had access to vaccines, you know, other vaccines during COVID because of the lockdown. TB patients have not had access to their medication during lockdown. So I am also worried about other kinds of public health problems because we didn't think through the lockdown policy carefully. So, you know, same for education. So there are a lot of other things which I think are bubbling under the surface, which might explode once we just, you know, have been in this sort of situation long enough. On those margins, it's a failure. Some states have done better than other. Maharashtra has done better. You know, Kerala has done well. You know, there are some states which are just doing very badly. Delhi's numbers are a little bit alarming, you know. So there is also a lot of variation within India, right? You know, Andhra Pradesh and Telangana are literally neighboring states. Telangana was carved out of Andhra Pradesh, but it has way lower testing, and it doesn't announce its numbers daily. It announces numbers monthly sometimes, you know. So there's also a lot of variation within governance in that sense. So some governments have just done better than others. But I feel the people of India have done well. You know, they've had some very high stresses imposed on them. And they have still tried to make sense of the pandemic and follow the rules and do right by each other in society and also what might be the best for themselves. So I think in, in that sense, you know, the Indian people are have been very sensible through the lockdown. Makes sense. What should we expect going forward? I know that cases are now rising as India opens up. Should we just expect another New York City or like another Italy? Or are there reasons to think it's going to go better than that? You know, I, I'm i not sure. So I think there are going to be some New York cities within India, right? Just because the numbers are so large and some of the cities are so dense. 
And, you know, as the numbers increase, it's harder and harder to get better policy execution. So if you didn't manage to contain it in low numbers, it's hard to imagine how you could do it in very large numbers, right? So there's that problem that exists in India. So there are definitely going to be a couple of New York cities and Italy's that are in India. It won't be across the country, but it will be in certain concentrated areas, most likely metropolitan areas. So that is definitely a problem. But going forward, I think there are a lot of other issues which we need to worry about. For instance, it looks like one day a vaccine will be available, right? We don't know if it's two months, six months, eight months, a year or two years. Yeah. But the expectation is most for most people sometime in 2021, people expect a vaccine to be launched. So we need to think about that today. So the government of India needs to have a plan for scaling of vaccine manufacturing. And India is one of the largest manufacturers of vaccines anyway, you know, and pharmaceutical products in general. So, you know, how do we think about scaling and making sure that the vaccine is produced in time? Do we have a vaccine distribution blueprint in place today? You know, how do you reach the very last mile? very swiftly. So India has had some very successful, you know, vaccination drives like the polio vaccine drive, you know, eliminating polio. It happened over a decade or more, but, you know, it did happen. So we need to think about the next problem. And I don't see any of that happening. You know, no one is thinking about the problem a month from today or six months from today. Everyone's trying to just put out the fire today and, you know, do something and spin it into a media narrative and carry on. So that part of the Indian governance system really worries me. By the way, that also worries me about America. You know, I was joking with a colleague of mine that the rate at which America is going, we may have a vaccine tomorrow, but we won't have enough needles. You know, it's it's just bottlenecks at each stage and, you know, no one is really, it feels like the leadership is asleep at the wheel. You know, it feels like Bill Gates knows what he's doing (laughs) on the vaccine front. He knows you need to have multiple strategies. But has the leadership, even in developed countries, created a blueprint or like, you know, multiple blueprints for different strategies on how to deliver the vaccine to the last mile, to the last person? And I just don't see that happening. That, to me, is the biggest problem India is facing today. It's hard to produce more doctors in the next year, but it's easy to produce more, you know, factories that produce vaccines in the next one year. And we should focus on that. Great. So I want to move on to some of your other work, especially on law and economics. And I guess maybe starting with your work on constitutional economics, which actually wasn't really a phrase that I had heard before. So what is constitutional economics and what's important about it? So standard economics really focuses on the analysis of choices within a given set of rules. So what economics as a tradition did for a very long time is it assumed that rules are exogenously given and fixed. Now, constitutional political economy broadens this research program by analyzing the choice of rules. So we're not just thinking about how people behave, what are the incentives, you know, that are set up by a given, exogenously given set of rules and rational self-interest people execute strategies, you know, within that. This is also how do people come together and actually choose the rules of the game. And in that sense, endogenizing the rules of the game is a very, very big and important part of constitutional economics. So the main contribution, or at least the starting point of the contribution, was to distinguish the choice made by individuals in ordinary politics at one level and in constitutional politics at another level. So it's sort of moving the application of economic principles across all levels. 
we are not just economic agents when we are buying apples in the marketplace, right? Now we're also thinking about applying the same principles to how we, you know, political actors act given a you know set of rules, which is the, the school of public choice. Then you move it to the next level and say, oh, this is not just rational actors acting under a given set of rules. They're also choosing the rules themselves. So this is a very powerful way to look at the world and to look at political economy as a whole, right? And endogenizing constitutional rules is important also in the sense that we're not treating constitutional rulemaking as something that happened once 250 years ago. You know, there was this constitutional moment that happened 800 years ago with the Magna Carta or 250 years ago with the American Constitution. But you think about the back and forth between ordinary politics and constitutional politics, you know, and that becomes a very powerful way to explain what is going on in political economy as a whole. So I think that's the way I would describe constitutional economics. Now, why is it important? I think it's important on a, on a couple of different fronts. So the first is to treat individuals as rational and self-interested, even outside the realm of markets and in the realm of politics. Now, this seems commonsensical, right? But it wasn't part of mainstream analysis within political science until quite recently. Even today, it occupies a relatively small space in analyzing, you know, politics. So it's it's called the positive political economy or public choice theory. So it's still like a subfield. It's not the way we think about politics. So in that sense, it's it's an incredibly powerful tool. When I talk to regular people, the emphasis is really placed on, you know, good intentions as opposed to good incentives. And that is always startling to me as an economist, right? Now, good intentions are hard to find, maintain, replicate, and especially hard to scale beyond a family or a small community. So when the focus is on intentions, then people in society get very disheartened or fatigued when they look at politics, because, you know, then it's it's just disappointment after disappointment. But if you shift the focus to institutional arrangements, right? You create rules and constraints where irrespective of intentions, political actors are incentivized to align their interests with the social interest, then that's a very powerful way of thinking about the world and very powerful way of thinking about governance. So that's the first important thing that constitutional political economy brings to the table. The second is that we need to solve a host of problems through collective action. And a lot of this happens outside the decentralized cooperation in the marketplace. So it's important to study how we exchange in the market, but it's also very important to study how we make collective decisions where there isn't a market exchange process, where we need to cooperate with each other, right? So now if you think about politics as exchange, but outside the market, then that gives you, once again, a very, it's a great institutional move to understand what's going on in society. And far less attention is paid to, you know, the processes and institutions that lead to political outcomes as opposed to market outcomes. This used to be dominant, you know, I mean, in one sense, my interests are sort of a direct line from the Scottish Enlightenment project, where you think about political economy as a whole, you don't think of just market behavior, non-market behavior, political behavior, constitutional behavior, sort of like a whole, right? So in that sense, constitutional political economy, I would say is a direct you know, sort of inheritor of the Scottish Enlightenment project and or, you know, what Professor Peter Betke calls mainline economics. There's a direct line we can draw from, you know, Adam Smith and David Hume to James Buchanan, Gordon Tullock, who are like, you know, the more modern versions of that kind of a project. So 
the foundational work in this area was, you know, done by James Buchanan, you know, who won the Nobel Prize for Constitutional Political Economy. One of the first few books written in the area was The Calculus of Consent. It was came out in 1962. This is between a collaboration between James Buchanan and Gordon Tullock. Both of them went on to write a lot in the area of public choice and constitutional political economy. I think Vincent Ostrom, you know, his theory of a compound republic is a masterpiece. You know, Richard Wagner, who was one of my mentors at George Mason University when I was doing my doctoral work, you know, one of his best works is The Democracy in Deficit. You know, so these are some of the people in the tradition who've written some really great work. So I think it's a very powerful way of looking at political economy as a whole. Got it. That's really helpful. And then it seems like there's some implied distinction here between constitutional law and law in general. And so the way that I'm imagining it from what you said is that public choice economics is focusing on how actors go about changing laws in general. And then constitutional political economy is saying, well, like, what are we doing about the rules that the public choice actors are acting within? Does that sound accurate? Yes, that's exactly right. So, you know, there are two stages at which we conduct the analysis. One is choice of rules, which is the constitutional level. And then the second is choice within rules, which is the realm of ordinary politics. So you're absolutely right in that. You're also right that there's, there is a little bit of difference between this kind of a school of thought and, you know, standard law and economics or new institutional economics. There are also lots of overlaps. A lot of the people working in these areas write across these subfields. But I think the major difference is both in new institutional economics and in law and economics, you can be much more focused about specific rules of the game, you know, as you do in public choice society. The constitutional economics project is much broader. Of course, you can look at the incentives posed by specific rules or why specific rules were chosen. But taking the analysis to the constitutional level and endogenizing that level gives you a slightly different picture than just looking at one rule on contract enforcement or, you know, strict liability versus negligence or, you know, something much more specific than that. So I think there are some important differences. I think the constitutional political economy is a bigger project on collective action and social cooperation you know, than the law and economics project is. Law and economics project need not have much to do with collective action and social cooperation. It can just be, you know, some kind of a social planner who switches the rule from strict liability to negligence or from negligence to contributory negligence. And then you go from there, right? So it's it's a slightly different kind of analysis. We also have this as in the legal tradition, you know, ordinary law is analyzed differently than constitutional law. So, you know, or administrative law is analyzed differently than constitutional law. If you just talk about the difference between public choice and constitutional economics. So I think, you know, you see that even in the in the legal tradition, you see yeah. this very clear demarcation. And it's possible this is too high level of a question to ask, but what makes a good constitution from the perspective of constitutional economics? And like, how different is that from what a lawyer or like a legal academic would say? What makes for a good constitution is one that can be adopted and enforced by the people who are trying to use the constitution. You know, so I'm a strong believer that there is no one set of rules that work really well across the board, across the planet. I think rules are extremely contextual. A rule that works in the United States may not work in India if it's just imported, right? So there is no such thing as like one good constitution. 
So yeah. a good constitution is one that works. A bad constitution is one that doesn't work, you know, quite simply put. So that's how I would describe that. Now, constitutions need not just be the governing documents for, you know, entire countries. You can have state constitutions. I think companies have their own, you know, charter, right, or rules of the game that can be thought of as constitutional law. Condo associations have very clear rules of the game and a lot of variation. I think that is a kind of a constitution. So the idea of a constitutional system is not just, you know, this written constitution that was handed and passed down from generations to generation. You know, that's just not a how I think about constitutional. I just think about it as people getting together to tell you what are the rules of the game. The one distinguishing feature of constitutional law over ordinary law is it also tells you how to amend the rules of the game. Yep. You know, ordinary legislation doesn't have an amendment clause. Only constitutions tell you how to change the constitution. So that's one way to think about it. So it's more about how people get together and cooperate on how to formulate rules that actually align individual incentives with the group incentive. So in that sense, constitutions are there everywhere. And there is no one, you know, single good constitution. Having said that, there are some aspects that make certain constitutions work better than others. I think the words are a lot less important and the structures are a lot more important. You know, so the architecture of constitutions, how they split up power, do they have separation of powers? You know, how strong is the separation of powers between, say, the executive and the legislature or the legislature and the judiciary, right? How strong is the vertical checks and balances on power in terms of federalism? How strong is it? Do we have ordinary federalism, fiscal federalism, weak federalism? You know, are there two levels of government? Are there three levels of government? I think these are some very important aspects within constitutions, the structural checks and balances, you know, and depending on what is the goal to be accomplished, sometimes you want more checks, which slow things down. Sometimes you want fewer checks to speed things up, you know. So it really depends on what is going on and what's the problem we're trying to solve. So if you notice at municipal level of governance, you have very weak separation of powers. It's mostly executive driven because things need to be done. You know, you need to pick up the garbage, you need to pave the roads, you need to make sure the lights are switched on, police are patrolling and simple things like that. At the highest level of governance, where you can really infringe on people's, you know, constitutional liberty, you can expropriate property, you have a lot more checks and balances. So sometimes we really want to slow things down, right? At that level, sometimes you really want to speed things up like garbage pickup, you know, with few other consequences. So I would say I want to pay a lot more attention to architecture, constitutional structure, constitutional architecture, not so much the text. You know, we've had so many constitutions have the same rights. And they sound the same when you read them out in English, but they don't actually, they're not implemented or they don't have the same value in, in, in a, you know, de facto sense. And so I guess in the context of India in particular, I know that you've written about some particular concerns you have with or like weaknesses of the Indian constitution. So I'm interested in sort of like talking through those and hearing sort of why it seemed important to you to investigate the Indian constitution as part of your work on Indian political economy? So a few reasons. I mean, my work on India is, you know, aside from the Indian constitution, it's there are two reasons for it. I grew up in India and, you know, I still I speak multiple Indian languages. I have very strong connections to the country, though I work in the United States. I understand the local context 
which I think is incredibly important for the kind of work I'm doing, both, you know, policy and academic work. So there is a comparative advantage in me writing about India. And, you know, I would probably make huge mistakes if I wrote about another place where I did not understand the local context and culture and things like that. That's one part of it. The other part of it is, you know, the moonshot element that we were talking about in the beginning when it comes to emergent ventures. But I think it's there for pretty much anything in India. You know, even a small rule change in India India has the ability to make an outsized impact on the well-being of just a very large number of people in the world. So, you know, it's the ability, they all come under one constitutional umbrella. If you can get one thing right in India, the payoff is just enormous. And I would just like, you know, a country that I belong to, a culture that I belong to, to succeed like that. So a lot of that, you know, comes from a personal, emotional partially a professional comparative advantage yeah. view. The thing I like about India as an academic, you know, now if I if I shed all my cultural and personal baggage is, you know, places that are messy and entangled, the problems are just a little bit more delicious. You know, they're not that straightforward. You don't have this glorious tradition of, you know, 800 years of constitutional law, which is extremely stable, you know, not prone to amendment. There's a strong constitutional culture. When you have lots of amendments and lots of messiness and, you know, lots of different interpretations, it just makes it delicious to look at a problem. It's a different kind of challenge. It's also harder to write about. So that's, you know, the academic side of me. I think a lot more people will learn a lot from, you know, looking at the Indian constitution. So according to me, a lot of Indian political economy, not all of it, but a lot of it is actually constitutional political economy. You know, a lot of the rent-seeking, cronyism, failure of, you know, provision of public goods, failure of uh, fiscal response, all of these things are visible at the level of ordinary politics. But the moment one reads the constitution or reads constitutional history and its interpretation, especially constitutional amendments, one realizes that all these problems that are visible in ordinary politics actually have a constitutional reason for them. So let me give you an example. Now, India has extremely small land holding sizes, and that makes Indian agriculture extremely unproductive and makes Indian farmers quite poor. You know, so that's one, you know, starting point. Now, why are Indian land holding sizes so small, right? So then you can start tracing that, oh, we had, you know, uh, ceilings on how much land can be held. And this is because they wanted to break up the Indian feudal system, you know, in the 1940s and 1950s in post-colonial India. So the idea was that, you know, you're going to take large feudal estates and you're going to break them up, right? And you're going to do some kind of land reform and you're going to give it to the farmers, right? So people who were landless farmers working on the on the feudal estate. So that was the original policy, right? Now, if you think about it, this is a certain kind of nationalization. You know, you take one person's land, you nationalize it for a particular policy, you break it up and you, and you give it back to the people. Why is it allowed? How was it allowed, right? How was it executed? Now, when I, when I, go back from the point of agricultural productivity to how the constitution allowed it, I realized that this whole thing happened without paying sufficient compensation to the feudal estates. So now that's a problem that's been going on. Now, what is the variant of that in modern India? In modern India, we have a lot of crony capitalism. There is this huge push that, you know, we need to create special economic zones or we need to create large manufacturing units. So there are people in India, especially, you know, a lot of people working in economic policy who say we need to take land from all these unproductive farmers. We need to take their land, you know, and we need to 
consolidate it into large land parcels and give it to the mining company or the pharmaceutical company or the car manufacturing company. Now, what's end up happening in modern day India is we are not giving them enough compensation, the, the poor farmers. And there seems to be something fundamentally and morally wrong about taking from poor farmers and giving it to rich capitalists, right? So there's that part of it, especially with the government coming in as a broker. Now you try and understand how this can be done in any functional constitutional democracy. And what I find is land reforms done in 1950 and the kind of, you know, special economic zones being created today, they are mirror images of each other constitutionally, it's the same story. You're taking from Peter and giving to Paul without just compensation, right? You have weakened the constitutional constraints on political actors such that they can expropriate land and use it for a particular kind of policy. The only difference is in 1950s, what was considered public interest was to dismantle feudal estates. And in 2020, what is considered public interest is we need to move towards large manufacturing firms. That's the only thing that has changed. But what is similar is that you're able to take land or property from one group and give it to another without balancing their interests and without paying just compensation, right? Now, at the end of the day, this is a constitutional problem. So today, if there are people in India who are protesting, you know, the plight of farmers and how their land is expropriated by the government, they are really, I mean, technically, they are protesting the local government or the local politicians, but actually the core area of protest is a constitutional issue. Why did we not tie the hands of those who govern us better? So you've definitely told some stories that sound just like really tragic about people having their land appropriated. I guess, what's the case for this being a really large policy problem? I can imagine someone saying it's really hard to figure out the exact amount to compensate people, but we do need to get land together in order to have big enough plots to like industrialize. Like this is a cost. It's a shame, but this is not like a huge policy issue. What's like the response there? Oh, so it's, this is a delicious problem. You know, I've, I've been looking at it for a while and especially for the book and things like that. So there are a host of policies by the government over a period of 70 years, which have really depressed agricultural land values in India, right? For instance, after the the way the British came in and controlled India, mainly through the feudal lords and the monarchs, there is this huge pushback against, you know, anyone who sort of threatens the well-being of farmers, right? So that one of the first set of policies that was implemented was that farmers should not be able to sell their land to non-farmers. Now, the intention behind the policy was that, you know, companies like East India Company, you know, which is the, always the, 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 the cautionary tale, but even like modern day normal firms should not be able to take advantage of a bad harvest and, you know, make the farmer sell his land in a fire sale. That was the ostensible reason for it. So the kinds of policies they put in place was farmer cannot sell to a non-farmer. You, you know, you can't sell. There's only so many units of land that any farmer can own. So no farmer can become too big and scale up and become like a feudal lord. Right. That was another kind of policy. You can't change land use from farm use to other use. Right. Anyone who buys farmland the buyer needs to submit a proposal to change land use, you know, and then make it industrial land or something. So there's a whole host of policies which were ostensibly to protect the farmer. But the consequence of these policies over 70 years is they've depressed the agricultural land market tremendously. So India is one of those really bizarre places where farmers are dying to get out of agriculture. Developers are dying to buy agricultural land. 
and turn it into manufacturing or you know urbanized you know condos and things like that but they cannot meet on the price because there is a dual market one market for agricultural land one market for non agricultural land uh, and the nice. dual markets are caused by a regulatory problem so what you see in india is this crazy kind of cronyism so what you see is rich developers have political connections sometimes politicians or their families are involved and they manage to buy the land from the farmers because one of the family you know one of the politically connected families has a farmer certificate or you know has some farmland so they end up buying the land use their political connections to get a change of land use certificate and then they sell it to the developer and the difference between the price of the land in some instances is 40 times you know so the land is worth 40 times more with a change of land use certificate in hand than with without one So naturally if farmers can only sell to other farmers and they can't themselves get a change of land use certificate because they're not politically connected and you know so on and so forth you've completely depressed the value of their largest asset why have you been able to do that as a country it's because we have not constrained the power of our legislators to regulate property i mean legislators have no business telling farmers who they can and cannot sell their land to but because the indian constitution allows them to do that you get this other problem in the economy which snowballed over 70 years creates a dual issue of very very small land holding sizes and an impossibility to convert it into a larger parcel of land now people who don't look at this problem constitutionally and they only look at it in ordinary politics they think of it in a very polarized way you know so the left says you know the government is against poor farmers and poor people they've sold out to crony capitalists the right says hey farmers are not that productive we need to get you know large parcels of land assembled and make sure that rich developers can you know create employment opportunities and get them out of unproductive agriculture so they are looking at it in a partisan and a polarized sense the moment you shift the analysis to the constitutional level all of this disappears and what you really try and understand is what are the rules of the game that prevent people from buying and selling property from each other why is it so high in terms of transaction costs you know for farmers and developers to assemble land parcels either individually or as a group then you know you're walking away from the immediate politics you're thinking about the larger institutional arrangements and that's for me the most interesting part of you know this kind of analysis and i can apply this you know this is just physical capital which is property you can apply this to affirmative action and human capital issues you know you can apply this to fiscal federalism you can apply this to why we have open defecation in india because municipalities are not empowered to build you know sewage systems and toilets so once you shift the level of analysis and you walk away from the blame game of individual political actors or political you know groups and i i think that's very powerful I have so many other questions I'd like to ask you about this, but just for the sake of time, I think I'm going to have to sacrifice and move on to another topic. So I really want to get to ask you a little bit about emergent ventures because I think it's just a really cool project. So you talked about it a bit earlier on, but do you want to give a bit of a description of what is emergent ventures and what about it distinguishes it from a typical foundation? Yeah so the idea of emergent ventures was to create a philanthropic you know fund or a project that will support other projects that may be you know too weird you know too out there too risky very hard to measure the impact or you know just you know very high chance of failing but if should they succeed they'd be great 
most major foundations are bureaucratic you know by the nature of their setup they like to pick more tried and tested things typically people who are better at grant writing end up getting the grant or the money rather than the better idea now there are reasons why different you know philanthropic foundations work in the way that they do but emergent ventures is an attempt to walk away from those problems now this is really tyler cowen's brainchild and the way he set it up is minimal to zero bureaucracy there are no layers and layers of approval tyler is the final approval you, you know approver of any emergent ventures application i approve the india applications you know of course we we all talk to each other tyler uses a couple of us as scouts you know we were in touch with him you know ask each other for advice on how to deal with a particular kind of project especially if we don't have much familiarity in that particular area but the idea is like a pop up philanthropy you know which quickly hands out grants to projects that are not otherwise going to be funded right so it's in one sense looking for those you know unlikely ideas which have gotten lost you know in the maze of standard bureaucracy when it comes to philanthropy and the other part of it is also choosing people right so i also like to support ventures where there might be very very low likelihood of the idea succeeding but it's come out of a very interesting smart creative person and empowering them through an emergent ventures grant is going to change the trajectory of their careers or their lives and you know then the next idea is much more likely to get you know success and funding and you know commitment and collaboration from others so that's you know the big picture vision of what we're trying to do i mostly try and follow tyler's vision in terms of what emergent ventures does but i use you know my own instincts and my own sense or judgment of what i think works or what is a better project or not when i'm choosing on the india projects yep that makes a lot of sense do you have some sense of how big these grants tend to be they really vary you know the nice thing about india is a very little money goes a long way yeah. so we've given you know grants as small as like 500 to 1000 dollars which have helped people get things off the ground you know 4 5000 dollars and like in india you have people building robots and you know then trying to get it to the next stage and so on and so forth so you have really small grants and then there are of course you know like in very large grants you know we're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars in some cases like half a million dollars so it really depends on the project and the person and what they are trying to execute the india grants tend to be smaller just you know it's a special tranche of that was given to emergent ventures and the asks are also typically much smaller you know so the average size of india grants is much smaller than the average size of the american grants but we try and keep away from any fixed template you know we try and keep away from you know of course there's a budget constraint but we try and keep away from we must only entertain grants smaller than this or bigger than that or you know we just so it's more of just evaluating each grant on its own merit and you know trying to empower the best most interesting ideas do you know how applicants tend to find out about it I've heard that it's usually through the internet and you know word of mouth so really smart and entrepreneurial people are attracted to other really smart and entrepreneurial people so that tends to do the job someone's heard about a friend of theirs who got a grant and you know was encouraged to apply but most of the heavy lifting is done by marginal revolution you know it's one of the most popular blogs in the world and you know tyler is very influential both through the blog through his writings for bloomberg or on twitter you know he's just relentless in terms of how he engages with the world just through ideas and entrepreneurial actions so you know i think i would 
I'm I'm free riding on the on the infrastructure and the brand of Emergent Ventures, and that makes it very very easy on one side. So I don't have to think of this as a typical startup. I came in with a lot of advantages. So it's really, you know, I mean, trying to do one's best to think about what kinds of projects to support. You know, it's really, that's that's the real struggle for me. Is there anything that stood out to you about what types of projects end up being most exciting to you? Ah, that's a great question. A few. You know, this might be because I was a professor for such a long time. And, you know, I've just had a lot of experience working with younger people and students. But the young talent in India is just sort of a marvel to me. You know, we have our youngest grantee in India, I believe, is Onkar Singh, who is 14 years old. You know, is about to start high school. His grant, I mean, it's such a simple and elegant idea. So, you know, the the state, the erstwhile state of Kashmir in India has had one of the most severe lockdowns pre-COVID. It's been going on now almost exactly for a year. And, you know, there was no internet in the initial parts of the lockdown. And then they only introduced 2G internet. They don't, still don't have high-speed internet. So as soon as the COVID crisis hit, Onkar tried to create a symptom checker that would work on Kashmir's you know, issues related to 2G problems. You know, it was a very simple website that would load easily, that would give the information about your immediate local hospitals and centers, that would give you the best information on, you know, the symptoms regarding COVID in the local language and so on. So it's a very low-tech, low-cost project, but it does a lot of good very quickly in the areas where people need the information the most, right? You know, so we've had a couple of people developing COVID checkers, which have, you know, this was even before the government of India, you know, got around to creating an app. So another one of our winners, Mohammed Suhail, he had a symptom checker across multiple languages before the government thought it is important to communicate this in multiple languages. Then, of oh. course, the symptom checker kind of got torpedoed by the fact that the government introduced one and made it mandatory. But, you know, oh. just have very smart, very young, very creative people. And all these people are in their teens. You know, when it comes to COVID, you know, when it, uh, we've had people working with municipalities. So one is Nile Kulkarni. They developed the contact tracing app for the Nashik municipality, which is, you know, municipality in Maharashtra. And then they started working with the with Bombay and Pune as well. You know, I already mentioned Akash and Puru, who were so instrumental in the, you know, sort of like the technological and the data analysis that they could give to different municipalities in India, most notably the efforts in Dharavi. So, you know, we've had a lot of, COVID-specific project that we empowered that, you know, did really, really well. So that makes me happy. One of our, in terms of moonshots, is also academic projects, you know. So there's something called the Shrug database, which is created by the Development Data Lab. This is Paul Novosad and Sam Asher. They're professors at Dartmouth and Johns Hopkins. And they created a database on various socioeconomic indicators geocoded across about 500,000 villages in India. And they got a grant to make all this data clean, coded and available to the public for free. You know, so it's this enormous public good. And we hope lots of research papers and policy papers come out of it. So it's not like a, you know, sexy cancer research kind of grant. 
you know, but it's a public good grant, which hopefully enables and launches a thousand more papers and dissertations. So some of these kinds of ideas, which are low tech, but do need resources and they do need support that ordinary philanthropic foundations are not likely to support. Those are my favorite. And my really, even among them, my favorite ones are the youngest group of people. They're just incredible. The teenagers that I support are my favorite people. For these moonshot kind of projects, do you have a plan for how to evaluate if they were successful? I think there are different margins of success. So I'll I'll walk you through a few things that I try to keep in mind. I think one margin of success is that someone tried, you know, with moonshot ventures. Anytime someone tries, it becomes easier for the next person to try and, you know, the next person after that and so on. So I think with moonshots, we need to think about this as a larger project in the innovation chain than just one single thing that's, you know, going to change, you know, the prospects of mankind. So the first is, did they try? Were they successful on any margin in getting some traction for their idea? Were they noticed? Did, you know, they get a little bit of scale and, you know, they go from there. So that's one kind of success that I try and evaluate. Another kind of success is the project might have failed, but the individual got a lot out of it. You know, the first entrepreneurial venture for the individual failed, but now, you know, their next entrepreneurial venture is that much better. And, you know, then venture capitalists and private equity firms take notice and, you know, start investing in them. So that's another kind of success. A third kind of success is the project was well executed, but whether it had an impact is going to be a very long run game. And there's no way to evaluate that. So, you know, this is stuff like the data development labs project, right? It's going to take us, you know, years and decades to know how many collaborations came out of it, how many better papers were written on India because of better data. There's just no easy way. So, you know, in those cases, I feel like, oh, they completed it. They put it out there. That's a success. That's a huge success. Now the secondary and, you know, the tertiary success that comes out of it, I hope it does, but there's no way of knowing for sure. And, you know, one day we'll find out. So I think of it on like multiple different margins. Like the example I gave you with Raman Bal, you know, I would love if he could individually scale up and give voice-based lessons to all the relatively poor students who have no access. But if his ability to do this project in India, in one village in Haryana, can inspire multiple other people to do similar projects in other states, I would consider that also a huge success. So it just varies. Luckily, I have a very kind mentor and boss who doesn't have any fixated ideas of what is a successful or unsuccessful project. And also, you know, Tyler's vision is very clear that if all your projects are succeeding, you didn't take enough chances, right? So the idea of moonshot projects is also that you want a very high percentage of failure. Otherwise, yeah. you didn't take the risks that you were supposed to take. Yeah. So it's it's, like, it's, uh, it's a mix. Yeah, so it's a mix of all of these different thoughts. So there's no template for success. It's, you know, more like learning by doing the way you, one does anything else. And just to get good ideas started. I think that's that would be my big one. You know, if I just find a really smart group of people who are otherwise you know, ignored and supported their ideas, which were otherwise likely to never get support. I think that's a great start to thinking about Emerging Dementias India. Yeah. So looking through the grantees that you do have, do you have a sense of whether they have alternative funding sources available to them? Some of them do. Some of them don't. Some of them don't need alternative funding sources. You know, it was a relatively small project. They needed particular kinds of technology. 
access to a platform, parts for a robot, you know, and, you know, we funded them and that was the end of that. With many of them, it is the ideas that, you know, we give them the initial sort of like the startup ability. And, you know, if it works, then they try and scale it up in a slightly different way. So it it depends. So I'll give you an example of a grant we recently supported, which I don't know if they've started looking for alternate funding yet. I think they have, and I hope they get it. So this is, uh, you know, V.S. Deepak, he's an engineer from Bangalore really, really smart young man. He's worked on a whole host of, you know, how to use engineering and technology to solve problems. You know, he's worked on designing better and smarter traffic systems, you know, traffic policing systems in Bangalore, things like that. Things that don't sound like these out of the world ideas, but actually make big change to how cities are run, how how we actually navigate traffic and life. Now, he's created a new startup company called Tilt. And Tilt's idea is e-bikes, you know, so now you see e-bikes everywhere, you know, you see city bikes in New York, you have version of that pretty much most of Western Europe and lots of big cities in the United States. But Indian cities are not so great for bikes, both because of weather, because of how the roads are designed. And most of the people who have the ability to subscribe to these bikes are not going to use them because they're going to use cars right? There's also a serious issue with property rights, which is, are we going to treat the bike well? Are bikes going to get stolen? You know, situations like that. So his idea is much more specific. He wants to focus only on campuses and townships, you know, so these are like, you know, industrial townships, large, you know, city campuses, corporate parks, especially in the world of COVID. Normally they rely on shuttle buses or minivans and things like that. Now that obviously has both like an aspect of, you know, carbon footprint. But during COVID, it's particularly hard to socially distance when you all need to be packed into a shuttle to go from building to building, right? Or to go from classroom to classroom. So he's creating this e-bike company that is only focused on townships and campuses. And I think that's a great idea. It's a beautiful local solution just for India. We got him started on a grant but he needs more resources. And some of them will come from the corporate parks themselves, you know, from the college campuses. And he's well on his way towards making that work. So they've already had, you know, in the last year or so, over 5,000 users. So they're, you know, hopefully going to become really big and they're going to scale. And I hope they make lots of money. You know, they're for-profit venture. So I hope all those things come true. But that is an example that I can give you where I believe you know, we support them initially, but I think they need a lot more funding and they need some kind of like a revenue model that makes this whole project feasible. And it's both great for the environment. It's great. You know, it's a great response to COVID. So I think from that point of view, it was a very creative idea, really smart young people behind it. You know, all these people are like, you know, half the team is in the teens and, you know, the, the founders are in their early 20s. You know, these kinds of projects are really special. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that I noticed is, especially for a lot of the high schoolers that you're funding, I would guess that there aren't that many other funders out there who would have been willing to take a bet on them. And so that does seem like a really cool thing about the work that you're doing is like, must make a big difference for these Yeah. And you know, the high schoolers are just so smart. Sometimes when I'm looking at the grants, 
it's actually not their project that's the problem. It's my lack of imagination or my own lack of education in the areas that they are interested in. So, you know, a couple of them are interested in economics or public policy that makes it much easier. But some of them are just working on things that I, I don't even know if I fully grasp what they're working on, you know, technologically speaking. Yeah. So they're amazing. You're absolutely right. It's very hard for them to get funding for these kinds of projects. On the upside, they also need very little money. You know, for high schoolers, one of the things I've noticed when I when I speak to young people in India who apply for EV grants, the thing that they are most thrilled about, even if they don't get the grant, is that someone took them seriously. And this is a problem, I think, just across the world. We don't take the younger people who are not as well credentialed very seriously. I think that's a general issue. But in India, you know, that's a very particular yeah. issue. You know, the higher up you are, the more gray hair you have, the more advanced degrees you have, you, the better you are. That's just an assumption culturally. So they are really my favorite people to fund. They are so creative, you know. They they need so little in terms of money and infrastructure. And it makes such a big difference to their mindset and how they approach a problem. If someone just has faith in them, and tells them, you know, let your creativity lose. We don't worry about, you know, wins and losses and profit margins. And uh, it's just really cool. incredible. Yeah. That's so they, they, they're very exciting to work with. They're very exciting to stay in touch with. I am constantly at a loss on how I can help them just because I don't think I'm as smart as them. <laughs> how has the work compared to what you expected of it? Any big surprises or lessons learned so far from how long have you been doing it for actually? About, I think, since September, October last year. Okay. It was about eight, nine months. I think the big learning has just been, I mean, you, I knew this at an intellectual level, but it's a little bit different to see it in action. Just how many problems exist out there and how many different ways there are to approach a problem and think about it. That is just incredible to see. You know, normally I know there are lots of ways to solve a problem of mobility or pollution or COVID, but until someone puts it together in a grant that I have to read, that I read very carefully, and then I look up some other work done on it and other parallels, until then it really doesn't register. So this idea of just unleashing human creativity and imagination and entrepreneurship and having 20 different ways of solving the same problem and hoping that something comes out of that kind of entrepreneurship and social cooperation. To see that in action is a little bit different for me than, you know, reading about it in yeah. academic writing, like, you know, Israel Kirzner's theory of entrepreneurship or something like that. You know, I mean, they're the same thing, but it's very different to see it in action. In terms of learning, I would just say I have become a little bit more patient with myself. Initially, any project that I read, I would worry about it for days. You know, I would just sit on it for, for hours and days and lose sleep over it, especially if we were going to reject a project. Like, you know, just take so long. Am I making the right decision or not? Paralyze me a little bit. And I have just become a little bit more comfortable with making those decisions because that's not my training, honestly. My training is not to pick winners and losers. Right. And I don't think that's what we're doing with EV either, but one does need to select certain projects to give grants to. And I would lose a lot of sleep over it. And I think I'm getting, I don't know if I'm getting better at picking, but I'm getting better at handling <laughs> how to choose projects and, you know, just trusting my instincts a little bit more and, you know, things like that. I worked on grant making years ago and saying no is just really hard. It's like a crappy feeling and it's hard to feel, I at least found it really hard to feel confident in it ever. 
I don't feel confident in it. And the other part is, you know, if we got a lot of terrible grants, it would be easy to say no. But we get so many really great grants. You know, a lot of times we don't support really great ideas because we are 100% sure they're going to get funding, you know, from mainstream, private sector, venture capital, things like that. Sometimes we don't support them because they are really well tried and tested ideas that we know are going to work, but it's a little bit outside of our mission, which wants to support moonshot ideas. So you feel bad about rejecting those, but, you know, I I try and communicate that it's not about the project and just, you know, what we're trying to do. But you're right. It is very hard to say no to very smart and talented people. That's something I do struggle with, but it's a joy overall. Yeah. It seems like a great job. Paul, so I'm wondering if a student in India who I don't know, is like an undergrad or at the end of high school, wants to eventually work on policy reform or like maybe have a career similar to yours. How would you tell them to get started? I would say read broadly. You know, economics as a discipline, especially as you go higher and higher into the academy, it becomes very technical. You read, you know, only within the discipline. I think if you want to do public policy, if you want to do broader political economy kind of problems, one needs to read broadly. So, you know, that's the number one requirement, you know, be curious about the problems around you and read very broadly. The second thing I would say is pay a lot of attention to local context. And I have had more appreciation for this as I have grown older and as I have written more, because initially the tendency is to follow best practices. You know, for instance, you look at what are the best practices abroad and you want to copy them, right? Or you want to look look at the best academics, you know, I mean, you want to read everything Milton Friedman has written and, you know, be genuinely inspired by it. And I was too, right? But I would not make the error, I hope, of, you know, applying what Friedman says one-on-one to what is happening in India without considering local context. So I think local context is just incredibly important. And academia tends to reward people who walk away from it. And I think, you know, in within the culture of public policy, we need to reward people who are more rooted in local context. And I think the third is epistemic humility. And this is not just for people who are starting out in public policy. Actually, they might have a lot of it. I think this is more for the rest of us who've been doing this for a while and some people who've been doing it for a very long time. You know, the idea that there is a single best answer out there, right? And we can both get the data to confirm it or to deny it and, you know, prove it. I don't think we have anything like that for public policy. You know, we don't have any of these eureka moments you might have in natural sciences or hard sciences in social sciences. So I think we need to really carefully think about what it means when, you know, we read a study. What does an empirical paper mean, whether it confirms our bias or, you know, it tells us something different about the world. So I think epistemic humility combined with local knowledge and context combined with just really broad reading, you know, everything from literature to law to history to, you know, culture, mythology. I think that really helps. That's how I was raised, you know, to think broadly about the world, to travel, to pay attention to the arts, to pay attention to literature. And, and you know, that's sort of how I have formed my my view of the world. That's great. So you might also have I don't know, like a couple of subjects that you'd recommend people study or like a couple of early career moves that you'd recommend that they make. So I'm interested if you have those, or maybe it's just the case that the thing that seems much more important is reading broadly and being sensitive to local context. And like those kinds of skills are going to be more important than like any of the more concrete 
here's exactly what to do in your career type of stuff. Oh, I am an economic imperialist in that sense. Like I, I see economics in everything. I think it's an incredible discipline. I think the way one sees the world once they have been trained in economics, you can never unsee the world that way, you know, I mean, and the greatest strength of economics is that it makes you pay attention to things that are not visible, right? It makes you think about unintended consequences or, you know, to borrow Frederick Bastiat's great phrase, the seen and the unseen, right? So, so it makes you think about the unintended consequences, the unseen effects. So economics is just a fantastic discipline. It's got a great, very sensible sort of methodological core in terms of rational choice and the ability to apply it to everything from, you know, constitutions to culture, to history, to religion, you know, to crime. You know, in that sense, I'm certainly one of those Chicago school type economic imperialists. I see I see it in everything. So I think the economic way of thinking is very powerful. So my any student who asked me, especially if they're working in public policy, which has so much to do with trade-offs, right? And costs and benefits, I would say an economics education is both thrilling if it's done the right way and it is invaluable, you know? So economics and everything. You can read broadly, but get trained in economics. So that is one thing I would say. I think the other moves are, you know, it's it's very means and ends linked, right? I wanted to be an academic. I wanted to be a professional economist who teaches economics. In that sense, the minimum academic degree you need to do that is a PhD, right? And that's, you know, the way to think about it. But there are many ways to do good in the world, which have nothing to do with academic affiliation or getting a PhD or going to law school and things like that. So, you know, the the effective altruism project is a great example of that. That's something that's something you guys do really well. So I think people just need to decide what the end goal is and accordingly pick the means to achieve the goal. So for those who want to work in formal public policy, you know, this might be the government think tanks, you know, all your multilateral organizations and agencies like the World Bank and things like that. You definitely need advanced degrees in economics, social sciences, public policy to achieve that goal, right? If one wants to be a lawyer and think about all the constitutional issues I'm talking about, it's really helpful to have a law degree. It's sort of, you know, a little bit hard to talk the talk and think the think outside of the legal training. So I would say for those things, it's useful. So it really depends on what the end goal is. But if if we're asking about really bright young people who want to be informed, engaged citizens, you know, read broadly, but also read economics, it just takes you a very long way in a way that I think no other discipline does. Great. And then if there were listeners from the US or the UK who are really interested working with or in India and wanted to sort of get a start, is there any different advice that you would give to them? Understand the local context once again. You know, it's very, it's harder when you're a foreigner. And sometimes I'm a foreigner in India because I don't speak all the languages. I just speak two or three of them. So, you know, just really understanding, knowing the language helps. I know a lot of, you know, political scientists and economists who work in India and they all learned the language of the area where they were doing their field work or running their randomized control trial and things like that. So I think that's very important. I think having a network helps if you're doing academic work. You know, you need to be able to go there, raise grant money, work with local people, you know, co-author, publish. So, you know, try and formulate networks. Go to a department where there are professors who are working on India. 
you know, for the non-academics, I would say there are so many ways to support India, starting with Emergent Ventures. You know, I might as well plug <laughs> what we are doing here. But, you know, if, if someone just has an interest in India and understands the value of the, you know, sort of like the moonshot value of doing anything in India and how a little bit of money and few resources can really enable people to change the world in a big way for a large number of people, I would say support philanthropic efforts in India. And it need not be Emergent Ventures. It could be anything. But Emergent Ventures supports very particular kind of ideas. So if anyone likes those, I would I would definitely recommend ourselves. And, you know, overall, the best way to learn about India, uh, many people think is reading, but I think is traveling. So I hope one day in the post-COVID world, if people just want to learn more about India, just go there. You know, spend some time there, find some friends there, and then you go from there. It's it's the way I learned about the United States. I think the reverse will be true in terms of learning about India. Makes a lot of sense. Well, it was fantastic having you on. I think that that's what we've got for you. Can you remind us your podcast name so listeners can go and find you? Yes, thank you so much. This was such a pleasure, Howie, and I'm so glad we finally had this conversation. And I don't think anyone has made me think as much as you have in the last few weeks in terms of, you know, thinking through all these issues about COVID and my own research and, and what I'm trying to achieve. Oh, the podcast is called The Ideas of India. It is produced by the Mercatus Center and it's available for free on all your major, you know, podcast platforms like Stitcher, Google. The first guest is Professor Ajay Shah. And I think that episode is out, you know, by the time you're listening to this, maybe a couple more, depending on when when the show is released. And I, I would love to get feedback on that. Great. I am looking forward to listening to it. Yes. And I, I hope we get a chance to talk more in the future. I, I would love to ask you a lot of questions because you were one of the first few people to, you know, think about pandemic risk and pandemic problems. In fact, when I was Googling this, your discussion with Rob was one of the first few oh, things yeah. that I found. And then I looked at the date and I said, this is from a long time ago. This has nothing to do with COVID. So, you know, I would love to pick your brain at another time when hopefully I get to ask the questions and, and you know, listen and learn from you and you get to answer them. Yeah, I'm now somewhat out of date. It's been some years since I was working on biosecurity and pandemics, but it was a really neat few years where as a grant maker, I got to sort of just get to know the whole space really well. And yeah, I would be happy to chat about that sometime down the road. Yeah, hopefully we get we get that opportunity. So, so I'd love to be in touch. Yeah, me too. This is great. It's really great to meet you. Likewise. Thank you so much. Thanks to Howie and Shruti for that conversation. Uh, I learned a lot listening to it, and I hope you did as well. If you did enjoy it, uh, remember that Shruti now has her own new show about government policy in India called Ideas of India, which you can subscribe to. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced by Kieran Harris, audio mastering by Ben Cordell. Full transcripts are available on our site and produced by Zaki Allhack. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.